my fellow Westorians. I'm Aziz, with me is Ashea, and this is Valar Reredis. A journey through the books for people who have made the journey before, brought to you by people who have made the journey many times. George has said before and will say again, this series was designed to be reread, and we're your tour guides on this journey. But even we doing this full time can't catch everything. If you're watching live, feel free to ask live questions or submit live comments. Some of them will be read aloud. You can also do so in advance, i.e. sending questions and comments ahead of time by joining us on one of our social media outlets, Facebook, Flick, Discord, or Slack. You can also check out the Isle of Faces podcast. That's Joe Buckley's show. And he is right in sync with us doing all the chapters the same week we do. And some of his thoughts make it into Valerie Redis as well. So check him out. Same goes for Nina Friel, except instead of a podcast, it's a blog on Tumblr, Good Queen Alley with one L. Her thoughts, as always, throughout this episode. You can join us on Patreon to support the show financially. You get things like episodes early, access to scripts. When we finish Valar Reredis, we'll be returning to episode voting. We haven't been doing that lately because, well, our schedule's fairly full. And we've got a couple things that are already voted on waiting to be made. Also, I, if you folks would join me in a brief moment of silence for a friend of the show, Colette Mullen, who has passed. Thanks, everyone. Let's start today with Jamie Nine, the one without sex in White Sword Tower, a.k.a. Brienne's Shard of Ice. John 10, the one where John is sent to kill Mance, a.k.a. Stop, Stannis time. Arya 13, the one where Sandor gets no mercy, a.k.a. Have coin, will travel. Sam 4, the gang calls vote, a.k.a. the one where Sam thinks of the children. John 11, the one with Stannis' indecent proposals, a.k.a. the Winterfell dilemma. There's a strong and clear focus on the wall as we near the end. Three of the five chapters today are there, and five of the final nine chapters in A Storm of Swords take place there. Starting back at week 11, we've had someone's final chapter each week, save one. Catelyn in week 11, Bran in week 12. Week 13 was the time we had no one. Davos was week 14, Daenerys week 15, and this week, two people have their final chapters, Arya and Jamie. There are straightforward themes of the kind that come around the end of every Song of Ice and Fire book, characters transitioning from plotline or location or situation or all or some of the above, but a lot of characters are also returning to their roots. Old family issues come back again, so to speak. Sam thinks of his father, John thinks of Lady Catelyn, Jamie of his father and sister, Arya and Sandor have been dealing with their respective family issues as well in their own way. Some characters are getting upgrades today. Brienne gets a new old sword. Arya gets an old new sword. Samwell knows a sword will never do him much good, but a pen, hmm. Some say they're mightier, and he says that he can lie with a pen as long as the lies are for a good purpose. Others are offered upgrades, but will turn them down. Jamie is offered Cersei and Casterly Rock. John is offered a blonde woman in a castle as well, Val and Winterfell. In both cases, they refuse in order to remain Lord Commanders. And that's what we'll start today with Jamie Nine, the one without sex in White Sword Tower and Brienne's Shard of Ice. That title, of course, refers to our earlier titles where 
Lannisters were having sex in strange places like near skull, dragon skulls and by their son's corpse. This, however, for some reason, it's off limits while those other ones are just okay. Hmm, that's a bit odd, isn't it? Lots of things are wrapped up in this chapter. Several more things are launched. The first line is... The king sat at the head of the table, a stack of cushions under his arm, signing each document as it was presented to him. It's not the most fun thing seeing Tommen being cute, knowing he's overwhelmingly likely to die. It's just so bizarre to think a child his age could have so many enemies when his enemy is Beats. Whether intentional or not, I suppose you could say this is another condemnation of monarchy from George R. R. Martin. As Illyria will say about Marcella, to crown her is to kill her. I know it's for different reasons that Illyrio says this. It's true for Tommen as well. And here's what Cersei has to say, quote, He is a boy, a frightened little boy who saw his brother murdered at his own wedding. And now they are telling him that he must marry. The girl is twice his age and twice a widow. These are very good points and cause for sympathy, legitimately. Uh, Cersei does occasionally have moments where even when she's after something, her sympathy for her as a mother is fair and real in a lot of cases. Sometimes she, well, she combines real fear over her kids with wanting to get something. So it's, sometimes it's a little of both. And Jamie acts unmoved here, probably because he suspects a little of column B or a lot of column B. He might not disagree that while kids need their mother, there are exceptions, and maybe Cersei is one of them. Tywin raising Tommen instead, though, that's the alternative. And if this is an improvement, I, it's not a big one, and I'm not sure it is an improvement. Tywin's track record with raising children isn't good either. It's fair to say that about Cersei, but if we're going to look at Tywin, <laughs> it's not so good. Tommen is older than Jamie and Cersei were when they lost their mother, for example, and that was permanent. But Tommen is the king, and Tywin the hand, and Jamie can't tell them what to do. Jamie says, what can I do? And, and here comes the bargaining stage, the asking of unreasonable things. Cersei claims that Tywin will let her stay with Tommen if Jamie leaves the Kingsguard. Jamie says, I'm not leaving the Kingsguard, though he implies he would if she openly declares their relationship. After all, he can't stay in the Kingsguard and marry her. Hmm. So Jamie is being a bit of a hypocrite here based on that and some other things, I suppose. Not only is it horribly naive to think the realm would accept their incestuous relationship, but let's declare our love to the realm doesn't jive with, wait, we can't do this here. Can anyone hear us? <laughs> I mean, right? <laughs> Not to mention turning her down after she, he forced himself on her in the sept. I mean, this is too profane or dangerous, but that was okay. This seems less bad than doing it by your son's corpse, man. It's also striking compared Jamie's willingness to be open about incest while worrying that Adam Marbrand will tell everyone how poor a fighter he is left-handed. Jamie, I think they kind of know already. Maybe not just how bad you are, but they know you're no good anymore. Let's remember that Tywin would probably have gotten his way on all of this, except the whole dying thing got in the way. So Cersei has something to thank Tyrion for after all. Eh, or not, because... She's probably going to be there to see her son die again instead of maybe having that happen where she's at least not doesn't have to witness it. My top guess for Tommen is that he's thrown out a window rather than jumping 
i.e. the show. And that theory doesn't exactly feel less likely when I see that here in this chapter, they bring up Jamie throwing Bran out the window while arguing about Tommen's future. Mm. Tommen's innocence and Jamie's boredom makes for really sharp contrast to the political action that's happening beginning of the chapter. Tommen's just happy signing, sealing decrees, calling Jamie Sir Uncle, which Nina points out that's a bit of a callback to Aegon V, a.k.a. Egg, his daughter Rael calling Maester Aemon Uncle Maester. Yeah. Jamie's bored and thinking about himself, and his boredom isn't entirely surprising. He's never been into this sort of part of the of politics. He's always been right a warrior. That's he's been into fighting and his sister. That's <laughs> that's been most of his life. And as he's taking on these new duties and saying, "Look, this is my job," he's finding out that well, it is boring. Your younger self at least had that right. It doesn't mean you should shirk those duties, but he's not entirely wrong that this is really dull stuff <laughs> for, uh, for someone who's been so much about action, especially. But it, what's actually happening here, there's a, it's, it's quite interesting if you're following the politics. Jamie isn't, but it just doesn't seem right that the people who upheld faith and seem to behave properly are being the ones most punished and the ones who turned on their lords and bat did backstabbing and things like that, these are the ones getting rewarded. It just sends the wrong message, doesn't it? Tywin, again, shows his skill at predicting how his opponents will behave. He's quite good at it. We show, of course, the first time he, he ever tries this, it fails because he badly predicts what Rob will do. At the time, we pointed out why. He made too many assumptions. He doesn't actually know Rob. He assumed a caricature of Rob, a young boy, general, rash, eager, etc. Most of the time, though, he's guessing the moves of people who are known commodities, like Stannis, someone who is tricky, but consistent with his attitudes. Tywin says he's adamant that Stannis will continue the war. He's 100% right. The only thing he's wrong about is where Stannis has gone. He thinks it must be Stormlands or Dorne. And that's funny because that's exactly what young Aegon does, what Fagon, young Griff does. He goes to the Stormlands and Dorne, not Or. So that's pretty cool. I mean, in Arianne too, by then, the Golden Company and Aegon have already taken Storm's End. I mean, that's oof. no Sir Courtney Penrose to hold them back this time. No Shadow Baby necessary, probably. Don't know what happened there, but I'd love to know. But that's another topic. Tywin sees the Dorne possibility for Stannis as extremely dangerous and increasingly dangerous because of Oberyn's death. This might be an opportunity for Stannis, he sees it as. Although, as far as we know, Tywin or Stannis didn't even hear about the Red Viper's death. This is yet another reason he was frustrated by the trial by combat. He says here, it must be seen to be the sort of justice that slays Gregor, not a poison spear. He wants Gregor healed so he can execute him. Now, I would never defend Gregor, but Tyrion predicted this back in his sixth chapter. Quote, It appeared as if his lord father meant to mine the mountain for every last nugget of ore before turning him over to Dornish justice. Yep. Tyrion had no way of knowing at the time that the final nugget mined was used to smash his champion's skull. We get this line, and so the mountain screamed day and night, and Jamie thinks, well, Gregor is paying for it now when he sees the bloodstain left by the boy he killed during the duel. This tests our sense of justice 
versus revenge, in a way reminiscent of Danny impaling the slavers, in a way that's going to play out through several more of the chapters today and throughout A Song of Ice and Fire, really. Gregor has inflicted imaginal, unimaginable suffering like the slavers, but maybe just killing them is enough. Well, killing this guy clearly won't be enough because he gets right back up. <laughs> From a supernatural point of view, how much of this endless rage and pain exists in the being that is now Robert Strong? Is he suffering in this state of existence that he has? Again, not that I necessarily feel bad for him, but it is a point of curiosity and it may drive his behavior. Jamie and Cersei, like Tyrion does, discuss the follow-up on Bran's life by Joffrey. So this is another kind of going back to the beginning moment that we discussed in the lead-in to today's chapters. Cersei is dubious but offers no alternatives, and Jamie seems convinced, though. When they fight, Jamie suggests he doesn't think Tyrion nor her lie to him, and she laughs in his face. Has Tyrion lied to Jamie? <laughs> well, he will if he hasn't, so I'm not sure about that, but it is a Bit of a naive thing for Jamie to say, like, oh, you guys haven't lied to me. It's framed so well by George to make it conflicting because one can argue that two wrongs don't make a right, meaning it was wrong to have sex in the sept, more wrong than it would be to do here, but still wrong. Let's not have, have sex by our son's corpse be the new low bar. Let's not say anything less gross than that is okay. It's just that the hypocrisy is aimed at Cersei and that makes it a little easier or maybe a lot easier for the reader to swallow because it's, we don't feel a lot of sympathy for her. In general, Cersei's kind of widely disliked. And when someone is being a hypocrite towards someone you dislike, it's a lot easier to take than when they're, say, being a hypocrite towards one of your favorite characters, especially a character you believe uh, behaves upright and, and sort of maybe deserves to be treated well because of how they treat others. Now, here's a good callback that reminds us of, well, we're going right back to the beginning of Jamie and Cersei's lives, not just their arcs. Quote, must you be so stubborn? All he wants... Is to force me from the Kingsguard and send me back to Casterly Rock. That need not be so terrible. He is sending me back to Casterly Rock as well. This is a great line because it's a complex or a complete reflection of the argument that originally got Jamie to join the Kingsguard and go to King's Landing in the first place. That's how Cersei encouraged him to take the white cloak and go to King's Landing. And of course, that backfired when... Tywin sent Cersei back to Cashley Rock and Jamie, you know, was sent home from the Tournament of Hall and all that. Business didn't go very well from that point on. But it's kind of in reverse now. We can also see the blueprint of how this relationship has always worked. Something upsets Cersei. Cersei needs something. So she comes to Jamie, often looking as hot as she can. And for her, that's very hot. And she pushes his buttons and he goes along with it because, well, he's turned on and devoted to her and has been for so long. But again, this is, this is a Jamie in transition. This cycle of abuse is becoming less cyclical. When Jamie first returned to the city, we thought about how long it had actually been since he was around and how much has changed. Robert was a pretty key part of that pie. And it's interesting to think about how frustrating Robert is as a figure for Jamie. He was very frustrating as a figure for Ned. So we can kind of get that attitude by thinking about other characters. But how bad must that have been for Jamie for so long to, even though Jamie was the one sleeping with the married woman, it still to him feels like 
Robert is the other man because Jamie and Cersei had been together far before Robert ever came in the picture. So that's a constant thing on his, had been on his mind while he was in the Kingsguard, thinking about his sister and Robert and having to guard Robert while he's hating him. So even now he thinks of Robert and it makes sense because Robert has been on his mind for so much of his life. There's one more little parallel here that when she says, Jamie, you're my shining knight. You cannot abandon me when I need you most. Well, this is going to be somewhat repeated when she sends that letter to him when he's out in the Riverland. And, she ends, and he ends up just kind of, well, not ignoring it, but almost ignoring it, not responding to it, not following up. And that's part of his transition that we're discussing here. And the way the chapter ends gives a lot of hope, a lot of positive signs, and a clear indication that more evolution of his personality is yet to come. Sir Gerald Hightower had begun his history, and Sir Barristan Selmy had continued it. But the rest, Jamie Lannister would need to write for himself. He could write whatever he chose, henceforth. Whatever he chose. That's such a great way to end a chapter. Such open-ended, but positive and full of opportunities and new possibilities. It feels a bit similar tone-wise to Danny's ending. You know, stay, rule, be a queen, but he's stay, rule as Lord Commander. It's similar. It seems clear enough that he's going to start going his own way in terms of conscience more often and not letting others decide for him. It's a little bit of trying to be a better Kingsguard, but also trying to a little bit redefine what that means. He doesn't believe Tyrion, for example, did it. He doesn't believe Tyrion is guilty, despite the two trials and everyone else seeming so certain. And of course, he's going to do something very un-Kingsguard-like, very family loyalty-like, which is set, uh, set Tyrion free. And while Jaime is fighting with Cersei, there's signs of more closeness to Brienne. When he's noticing in contrast to how he interacts with Cersei, they have mostly a positive interaction. Obviously, there's the moment where Brienne makes assumptions about what Jamie's after and that frustrates Jamie because his intentions are good. Still, Jamie notices her beautiful blue eyes and she compliments on him on how he looks in his white cloak. And that's more than just courtesy because remember, she didn't think he was worthy of the cloak before. So now by saying it's, it looks becoming on him, She's implying that he is now worthy, that, he's ex- that she's accepted him as worthy of the King's Guard. So that's a big change for her. But then, of course, they do have this argument. Still, he sets about earning that white cloak again by trying to fulfill his oath to Catelyn. Despite being upset by Brienne's assumptions, it doesn't distract him from his purpose here. Even though he made that vow to Catelyn at sword point, he's still going to fulfill it. And hey, that Kingsguard oath was effectively made at sword point too, if we're really getting into it. I mean, it's not literally, but basically. As for the Oathkeeper part, it's almost like Jamie outsourcing his honor, Nina Rice. I like that take. It's a good way to put it. They both swore oaths to Catelyn. Jamie's other oaths kind of prevent him from fulfilling the oath to Catelyn, but he still believes in it. And so he does the best he can by having someone else go fulfill it. And he gives part of himself, in, at least in terms of this sword, because it was meant for him. It's meant for the Lannisters, and he's changed that. So, And if he's for crows, he's going to continue to try to live up to this promise. 
Not completely, but as best as he can. He thinks that technically he's going to avoid taking arms up against the Tullys and Starks because of the, the siege. While not actually hurting anyone, he makes threats. And yeah, so it's, it's a gray area, but he doesn't actually hurt anyone. But Brienne doesn't have these conflicting oaths. So another, she's also more equipped in that regard. She's more less compromised in that sense, more able to go out in the world and focus on this mission. She doesn't have other obligations, let alone vows. Joe Buckley writes, only a few characters have more depth and layers than Jamie Lannister, so to leave the big event of his ending to another POV is weighty. It's a, it's a bold move by George to have this night quest that Jamie wants to see fulfilled, but he delegates it effectively. But this is the new Jamie. He has to delegate more and more, especially the action things decisions he's got to start taking more responsibility for, but the man's just not a warrior anymore. It's just as simple as that. He's got to face what he is. He's got to rely more on his wits now and his position of authority, which is substantial. So the big act that defined his life for so long, meaning becoming the Kingslayer, has always been wrapped up in how people view and judge him. And he still cares about that, but it's not specific opinions he cares about. He cares about setting an example so that other people will follow his lead. Not so he'll feel good about how people judge him. He cares less about judgment in that sense, but it still matters. He still has to set an example whether he cares about whether his personal feelings enter it at all. It still comes down to what other people see of him and how they behave because of his behavior. The names he gets called, that doesn't matter. But if him being a Kingslayer encourages other people to break vows. That's not good. But if him sending Brienne out and upholding vows and saying, hey, look, oaths are worth something, well, that could have a positive effect on the realm as a whole because he's Jamie Lannister and people know who he is and, well, he's got a prominent voice. Using his powers for good. The g- gift of Oathkeeper, though, also, there's another side to it. It's very special, very generous, but it's also kind of a must. Not only, I mean, based on what we were just talking about, yes, Jamie has accepted what he is now, but he's also still frustrated and, and sad by what he was and isn't now. He see, and he sees the sword as an insult from his father. He refers to it as a mocking gift. The sight of it makes him angry. He wanted one his whole life. And now that he finally gets it, it's pretty useless to him. It's just, a, it's beautiful. It's functionally hmm, not much good. Sad to say, though, Jamie's not the only one upset by the sight of this shard of ice and Lannister colors. Of course, shard of ice, referring to the fact that the sword used to be part of the sword ice. But yes, so this sword is going to upset people besides Jamie. Lady Stoneheart is really not going to like the sight of it. Neither are the rest of the Brotherhood Without Banners. And they simply won't be able to believe that Brienne kept her oath to Catelyn because she's walking around with Oathkeeper. It looks bad. It looks real bad. I mean, it's kind of like Oberyn being told to believe that Tywin didn't care about Elia. He just, it just doesn't fit in his worldview that Tywin could possibly forget about that. Same thing here. The Brotherhood Without Banners and Lady Stoneheart are going to, it just doesn't make any sense that, that Brienne would be carrying Oathkeeper if she wasn't working for the Lannisters. Right at the start of this chapter, we see Edmure and Brynden, Tully, named on a bill of attainder. So this is, part of where this chapter is leading. It's really quite nicely set up. A lot of what Jamie's going to be doing in Feast 
and Brienne as Brienne's arc as well, because Brienne's arc is going to be wrapped up in this. Jamie's going to go to uh, River Run after the failure of the phrase to besiege it properly. And they're going to give River Run to Eamon Frey and Lady Jenna Lannister. That's Tywin's sister, uh, Jamie's aunt. It will be Jamie himself who has to, of course, fix it. And then on his way back, before he can write about it in the White Book, he is led off the road by Brienne, who takes him to this, not literal cliff, but to a cliffhanger. And we'll have to wait and see what happens there. But in addition to these attainders for the Tullys, there's some other important documents signed by King Tommen here. Jonas Bracken is mentioned. And of course, he's going to be part of Jamie's arc, not in Feast, but in The Dance with Dragons, just before he runs into Brienne. This is, I think, the last chapter before that. And he'll, of course, negotiate the surrender of, of the Blackwoods while the Brackens are present besieging it. A few other river lords are pardoned, and that's relevant as well because some of them are going to be part of the siege at River Run, very unhappily forced to turn on their former liege lords. Ramsay is legitimized here in this chapter and Roos made Warden of the North. And of course, along with that, much is made of Tommen signing all these documents in a lighthearted manner. But I wonder if any of them will be repealed because they're signed by King Tommen. After all, it could be revealed to a point that enough people believe it or at least accept it that Tommen's not Robert's son. I wonder how much of any of the decrees made by Joffrey and Tommen could be undone by their kingship being declared illegitimate in the first place. It's entirely possible. I don't know. That might be a way for River Run to be given back to the Tullys, maybe. There's, this could actually work out well in some cases. But anyway, the Lannisters are likely to fall from power and Tommen perhaps literally falling. There could be more fallout than just the Lannister regime. It could be some of the decrees and laws and things they pass could be undone because of that. This wouldn't be so easy to do if it was just a prior king who just was bad, like Ares. No, none of Ares's laws were unmade because they were declared illegitimate. Some of them were simply unmade because a new king came along and just made contradictory laws, meaning Robert. But that's a different than repealing them because they're illegitimate. Joe wants us to make sure we don't miss this one either. Good point here. And this is a good quote. This is your royal pardon for Lord Gawain Westerling, his lady wife, and his daughter Jane, welcoming them back into the king's peace, Sir Kevin said. Another important Jane making her way around this chapter only by word, though. So that's really important because, as Joe calls, it's this little nugget, which is going to be really important in part because of the River Run plot as well, because that's where he's going to run into Sybil Spicer and call her unpleasant things to her face. <laughs> Jamie doesn't like Sybil Spicer. Hey, join the club. I don't know of anyone who's a fan of Sybil Spicer. But this is a pretty big deal. The Red Wedding is people are getting these rewards that we talked about. Rolf Spicer is also being given Castamere. So the Westerlings made out like banditos here. Got the mad hookup for what they did. But I don't think they'll get a, fully get away with it. We'll have to see what happens to them in the long run. But as the Lannisters get their comeuppances, so may the Westerlings. Maybe some of these things will be undone. Maybe some of these decrees will be among the things that are reversed. 
This isn't the first mention of the phrase getting river run, but it is a confirmation and reminder how many things are changing and just how just the stroke of a pen. The Tullys have been lords of river run for a long time. They were lords paramount of the Riverlands for 300 years. It's just another reflection of Tywin Lannister being such a wave of broken traditions. These are the, this is a different kind of tradition, but it's still a tradition these traditional heirs and traditional lords and ladies of, and, and rulership arrangements that are being very quickly undone. Nina, with an interesting point here, wondering about Jamie's stubborn naivete regarding his siblings and, and whether they've ever lied to him or not. Some of it may be projecting, guilt projection over the Taisha lie. Jamie has thought about this one major lie that he told a few times and has kept from Tyrion that he's about to finally tell him in Tyrion's last chapter. But it's entirely possible these things are related because of he, you know, maybe that's the one lie Jamie's told Tyrion and he likes to believe the opposite, that there hasn't been one lie coming from Tyrion. There hasn't even been that. Jamie starts his look at the White Book wishing that Gerald Hightower and Barristan Selmy had written more about his victories against the Kingswood Brotherhood and in the other tourneys. Yet when he sits down to write his own story, it's pretty neat. He is, he's very honest about it. He writes a bunch of things that don't make him look good about being captured, about losing the Battle of the Whispering Wood and how Brienne saved him and all these other things. So it's pretty neat how blankly honest he is. He's like, they could have written more about me. And then he goes and writes these things that are completely unflattering. <laughs> so I, I find this oddly comforting because I, I just love dedication to historical accuracy, even within a fantasy setting. So I, I, that makes me a little bit happier. Shannon0893 says, do you think all three ch children's deaths will echo the Lannisters and company evil acts? Joff dies at his wedding. Lannister Frey commit mass murder at a wedding. Tommen may go out a window like Bran and Marcella. Well, well that's where we get into, um, she had another message here. Um, well, I asked that exact thing. Well, what would third be? What would Marcella be? And she said, it could be something Cersei's played a role in since Tywin and Jaime played a part in the other two. And she brings up the well slash drowning could be close, and she, uh, which is what Kulnitsky suggested in the chat. Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah, I, mean, I can, can see that. If we can think of a th other third one, way for Marcella to die that uh, parallels a Lannister act of violence. Interesting. Yeah, I, I mean, there's one that was attributed to the Lannisters that isn't actually them, which is the poisoning of, of John Aaron uh, that I think of. I, I think of that not because I think it's because of John Aaron is relevant here, but because uh, Marcella getting poisoned is, is yeah. where the mind goes based on what happened on the show. And given the Sand Snakes, that's one of the ways they <laughs> operate. So it, it, but drowning, yeah, why not? I mean, <laughs> there's a lot of ways to kill someone. That could fit. That would certainly... We'll be on the lookout for that. It's a good call by Shannon0893 there to look for these parallels. Um, so this is one to be aware of. Look, be, be on the lookout for the specific ways these Lannister children are, are, are removed from the board because it might have these echoes. A couple people, including myself, have some rare sympathy for Pycelle given Tywin's unreasonable demands. The unreasonable demands on saving Gregor. It's a sign of... Tywin's frustration, Tywin yelling and, and acting like, make it happen. This is not the normal Tywin-esque behavior. This is a little more like Joffrey, quite frankly, demanding, or Ares even, demanding the impossible, demanding 
that physics and biology obey him. I mean, what? <laughs> and Tree Girl has a great little side point here suggesting maybe this short temper from Tywin is because he's constipated. <laughs> or at least partly because he's constipated. After all, that is where Tyrion finds him. And it does seem like he's having trouble, which is part of the evidence that Oberyn was poisoning him, by the way. Some questions about the timing of fake Arya, as in, well, how does fake Arya work into this with Sansa's claim coming first? How did that all play out timeline-wise? Well, let me try to explain that as briefly as possible. Arya had value as a hostage from the beginning, but not nearly as much as Sansa because her claim is behind Sansa. So her value was just pure hostage value, like noble child will pay to get her back. Sansa had that plus her claim. Because her claim comes first after the supposed deaths of Bran and Rickon and real death of Rob. Now, Littlefinger, of course, knows all this in advance. And he knows or realized how he could manipulate the situation. He knew that if Sansa were taken off the board, then all of a sudden Arya would have a lot more value because all of a sudden her claim is tops. That gives her way more value as a hostage slash marriage piece in this ruthless game of thrones, that top spot is so very valuable. The claim means Winterfell. It's enormously more valuable than second place. And he also knew that he, could, that he would be the one to steal Sansa and be the one to remove her from the picture, then sell fake Arya to the Boltons, knowing that once the Boltons are established in the North with fake Arya as their linchpin of their claim to Winterfell, he can ride in with Sansa and say, look, that claim's invalid. I've got a better one. And the Boltons are thus overthrown in part by their own attachment to a lower claim. And this is all Littlefinger's manipulation. It's quite genius, I gotta say, despite not wanting to praise Littlefinger as far as the cleverness here. It's, it's well done. <laughs> gotta say, gotta say. So wide expression of sadness at the sight of Jane Poole. Everyone here, not everyone, but so many people in, the, in on our different social media platforms just expressing great sadness for her. And frankly, we, we knew it would be bad for her even on the first read. All the, all the evidence was there. We didn't know quite how bad Ramsey was, but we already knew he was a sadist when he was, at this point. We've already seen him do these things to Lady Hornwood. Awful things. Ramsey's reputation is known, even if by the time A Dance of Dragons comes, it gets even worse. So even first-time readers can go, oh my God, poor Jane Poole. This is awful. Great con conversation started by Archmaester Emma on Flick that refers back to the beginning of our analysis of this chapter about how so many characters have expressed frustration at the tedium of rule. Jamie does it in this one. Robert has said it. And Danny, quite possibly, is going to be seeing it. And Tree Girl suggests the loneliness factor is important here too. These are all somewhat isolated, lonely figures. Even Robert was that. Just not a lot of peers, not a lot of friends. They aren't what they used to be, etc. And what does that do? What does the tedium of rule mean? How does that, does that lead to bad decisions? Does it lead to going too far? Does it lead to... Yes, I think it does. It leads to all the above, not necessarily with each particular example. But those are the pitfalls. And with that, we are done with Jamie for A Storm of Swords. As far as, far as POVs go, of course, he will still appear in Tyrion's chapters, so the character is still going to be around. And then we're going to get a lot of him in A Feast for Crows 
Jamie, Brienne, Cersei chapters combined add up to more than half of the book. John 10. The one where John is sent to kill Mance, a.k.a. stop. Stannis time. Excellent surprise, fun battle, more frustration incited by Slint and Thorne and their gang. Those guys are really good at that. But quietly, this chapter has a lot of supernatural to it as well. Under the surface, and of a lot of different types. I'm excited to share that with y'all. First line is... The wind was blowing wild from the east, so strong the heavy cage would rock whenever a gust got it in its teeth. John had been kept in a small storage cellar of ice for four days, like five by five, tight enough that he couldn't stretch out or stand up. It's highly vindictive and perhaps foreshadowy. And then keep in mind how this plays in very well with this theme of revenge versus justice, where one begins and where the other ends, and if you can even tell the difference. Well, this is vindictive. They're calling it justice, but... Mm. Now, Bran long ago dreamt of John in the cold because, and this is where I think there's some foreshadowing that was laid out long before. What Bran re- dreams of is John's, the warmth leaving John's body. Now, you could argue that's after he's stabbed, but after he's stabbed, a lot of people, self-included, think it's entirely possible his body will be stored, left in storage for a little while, and it would be in a place like this, in one of these little ice cells, and that would also be reminiscent of Bran's dream. The skin changer, Varamir, is also stabbed to death very shortly after this battle, actually. We just don't see the full extent of it until A Dance with Dragons, but it's enormously useful to us here to refer to that chapter. When Vermeer suffers his true death, meaning his body dies and he moves on to his wolf, he has a sensation that is described as a shock of cold, as if he had been plunged into the icy waters of a frozen lake. So overwhelmingly, death is cold in this, set, in this setting, which is really interesting because of we're gonna, when we talk about Melisandre and how much the fire is associated with life. John's brought out of his cell, and instead of being hanged or something, he's given a suicide mission, which he's saved from only by pure luck. Because, you know, John, he was going to try. He was going to give his life up for duty. That's John for you. Which really says a lot about the cynicism of men like Alistair Thorne and Janos Slint that they're willing to play off of such a noble instinct like that. As bad as those guys are, Maester Eamon... There's lots of examples of him being a forthright individual, and some of those examples are more subtle than others, and some of them are directly related to this plot about trying to bring down John. Writing to Cotter Pike about John's arrest and impending execution was really clever on Eamon's part. Janos wasn't Lord Commander, isn't Lord Commander, but he just walked in and kind of acted like he was, right? He kind of said, I'm de facto Lord Commander, and not only acted like he was going to be that until there was a real election, but kind of acted like he was the de facto top choice to win the election too. So he was really behaving like it was a done deal. And, you know, insists on people calling him Lord and talks about how he's connected to the Lannisters, all that. The reason this is so clever, because Eamon isn't making it about justice for Jon Snow. He's making it about the authority of various factions within the Night's Watch. And he knows that Cotter Pike is one of the people whose name is going to be pushed forward to be Lord Commander. And he's like, hey, look at this guy trying to act like he's in charge over here. That's going to be more upsetting to someone who wants the top job more than some nebulous 
concept about Jon Snow deserving justice. Cotter Pike doesn't know Jon Snow. There's no personal feelings there. But Eamon made it personal by saying, hey, look, this guy's trying to steal your, your spot. He's trying to, but he didn't word it that way, but made it clear that was going on. So very well done by Eamon and, of course, by extension, George R.R. R. Martin. Maester Eamon himself, on the other hand, probably does favor John. There probably is some favoritism there, but he's also standing up to Jano Slint's grasping here. Slint is going too far, and as a member of the Watch like any other, even if his job's a little different because he's a maester, he's still a member of the Night's Watch, and Slint is seizing authority that does not belong to him. So really, any brother would be in their rights to try to push back on this, I think. I mean, he's also flaunting Night's Watch conventions besides exceeding his authority. He makes so much about himself. He's out here saying, I am championing Night's Watch values by rooting out traitors and all this other stuff. But he says things like, Jano Slint does not make terms with lawless savages. It's not about you. It's about the Watch. Does the Watch make terms with them? Your personality is nothing. And then he... (laughs) He says, I can't have it said that I hanged someone unlawfully. Again, he's making it about himself. Instead, though, they send send him on this suicide mission. They blame him for the death of Corrin Halfhand, which is also ironic because Corrin Halfhand would never, never act like Janos and Thorne are acting. He would act more like what John is acting like. It's actually kind of clever. I hate to admit it, but... Alistair Thorne and, and Janice Slint's plan here is, is pretty good. It's kind of like the Littlefinger thing. You got to give them credit, even though we hate them. <laughs> because if John kills Mance, that's really effective. That's a great thing for, and then they can claim credit for, even though John will get some credit for it, they can claim credit for sending and giving the order and saving the watch. And after all, let's not forget that is basically what Mormont wanted to do. He thought just kill Mance and we're in great shape here. The, the whole leadership falls apart, which, quite frankly, that is what happens, but we'll get to that. And if John dies, if he fails to do it, then, well, they've gotten rid of John. So that's either way, it works out for them. And then if it goes a third way, for example, John kills Mance and is killed, that's great for them. One thing they maybe didn't consider is John kills Mance and gets away. Now, this is a remote chance. Like, how is John going to kill Mance and escape? But if he does do that, then he's a hero. And even though they can say, well, we sent him to do that. It was our idea. It still makes John into the hero who did it. And well, so let's do what we often do. Look ahead. As I said a minute ago, we're going to take a look at Veramir's chapter and let it help us figure out what's going on here, as well as unravel a few other supernatural mysteries. Here's a nice, long, interesting quote. His last death had been by fire. I burned. At first, in his confusion, he thought some archer on the wall had pierced him with a flaming arrow. But the fire had been inside him, consuming him, and the pain. Veramir had died nine times before. He had died once from a spear thrust, once with a bear's teeth in his throat, and once in a wash of blood as he brought forth a stillborn cub. He died his first death when he was only six, as his father's axe crashed through his skull. Even that had not been so agonizing as the fire in his guts crackling along his wings, devouring him. When he tried to fly from it, his terror fanned the flames and made them burn hotter. 
One moment he had been soaring above the wall, his eagle's eyes marking the movements of the men below. Then the flames had turned his heart into a blackened cinder and sent his spirit screaming back into his own skin. And for a little while, he'd gone mad. Even the memory was enough to make him shudder. That is so very specific. The flames turned his heart into a blackened cinder. That's the fiery heart sigil. Melisandre turned Baramir's eagle heart into the sigil of R'hllor. It's crazy. Like, wow, it's manifested in this guy's mind and soul. And he has this permanent memory of it. it that's as literal as his sigil has ever been. I really wonder at the magical underpinnings here. Does Melisandre visualize this fireheart? Is it like in her mind? Is she imagining it? Is she focusing on it? And then it just manifests up in this eagle. That was crazy. I wonder if we'll ever get a firsthand account like this again of what that's like. Maybe from John. I brought this up earlier this chapter. Fire in his heart. Heart of resurrection. The kiss of life. That which brought back Beric to the utter surprise of Thoros fills the lungs and heart and soul with fire. That's the way it's written. Somewhat similar language. And Thoros conspicuously points out that all red priests learn how to perform the kiss of life. It's like one of their 101 level classes. <laughs> Prior to the battle, the eagle was their proof that the Night's Watch was weak. Those extremely sharp eyes showed that the straw sentinels were not as tricky as the brothers hoped, that the free folk knew the stairs were collapsed, how few supplies like oil and arrows were there. More importantly, how few men remained at Castle Black. The eagle was also apparently scouting behind them, not just the wall in front of them, keeping an eye on the army of the dead. Yet another piece of supernatural evidence presented in this chapter. Harma Dogshead mentions that the whites are behind them, meaning to the north, while Mance points out the others only come at night. He says nothing, them, nothing of them bringing night, by the way. The whites are indeed very close. As Harma says, the whites are behind them, meaning north, and Mance has mentioned fighting them several times. Veramir sees them in his chapter, and Veramir's chapter is only a few days after this battle. So when we're going through A Dance with Dragons, we'll be keeping that in mind. And a lot of the whites may have headed for Hardhome. We certainly have evidence there's whites at Hardhome. Whether there's multiple armies of whites out there, not really clear on that, but there's definitely an army of whites at Hardhome, or at least in, whites are rising at Hardhome. Dead things in the water, you know, dead things around, all that, all that creepiness. I really look forward to discussing that plot line later when it comes. Of course, it's thousands of wildlings that flee to Hardhome under a woman named Mother Mole who has visions. And also that's right after this battle. Another little quote here that refers to the supernatural, this one comes from Dalla. We free folk know things you kneelers have forgotten. Sometimes the short road is not the safest, Jon Snow. The horned lord once said that sorcery is a sword without a hilt. There is no safe way to grasp it. Feels like we've referenced that quote a bunch of times because it's just so applicable to so many parts of the story. Mary Mazdur, Melisandre and Stannis, Bran, the dragons. So many things about magic have side effects or dangerous implications or that you have to give up so much of yourself to use it. Before stories end, we can likely add Euron, John, 
more dragons to this list. Who knows? It's just more people are going to fall by the wayside to the forces of the supernatural because George has made it clear that these things have great cost. I mean, wielding a sword without a hilt, that would mess up your hand, <laughs> right? I mean, that's more straightforward. It's, it kind of sounds kind of funny that when you put it that bluntly, but that's the concept. There's no wielding it without har- self-harm. It may even turn out to be incredibly relevant to the origins of the others or, and or the overall message of the series. Like Stannis and John both, Mance has something in common. It's sad how they're all on the same page about what matters most, which is who the true enemy is. None of them like the idea of all this infighting because it just gives indirect power to the others by weakening the defenses of humanity. So you got to respect Stannis's devotion to that. You got to respect John's devotion to that and Mance's too. All three of them have issues that perhaps get in the way of doing these duties completely uh, without diversion. For example, in Mance's case, even more important than fighting the others is not giving up their values. He'll give up a lot, but he won't kneel. That is something I think the show did quite well, is that it, it really distilled a lot of Mance's plot, but in his death moment where he just, no, I'm not kneeling no matter what, that was, that was well done because it, they, they did grasp a core value, if not the core value of the free folk, which is we do not kneel. <laughs> that is as simple as you can make it. So it's really big in terms of policy and negotiating later because this is an important deal breaker for Mance and his people. Unfortunately for them, they are forced into it. They're forced to kneel and forced to give up their gods because they lost this battle and are put in a position where they either have to stay on the wrong side of the wall or pay a huge price to cross. Speaking of John's luck there, not only was John lucky that Stannis showed up, which freed him from his job of having to try to kill Mance, but it kind of looked like Varamir was going to kill John and just, you know, he could have easily been like, yeah, he tried to get away. Mance, what was I going to do? What's Mance going to do? Like, Seems like Varamir could have gotten away with that. The linguistic joke is repeated in this one. John is still like, my lord, my lord, my lord, to Jano Slent. That one keeps going. But let's talk about the horn for a minute. That's far more important. John's confused because Igrit told him that they never found the horn. But Man says he didn't tell him because he never fully trusted John. But that doesn't answer the whole question because did Igrit lie to John about the horn or did Mance keep it from her too? We don't have a resolution on that. In A Dance with Dragons, John is going to wonder the same question. Did Igrit lie to him or did John Mance lie to Igrit? I kind of lean toward Mance lying to Igrit. On the other hand, that's a giant horn. <laughs> like, how would he keep that secret? Uh, on the other, other hand, if it was, if Igrit knew about it, then so many other people would have known about it probably too. And then it just would have been hard to lie to John about it. So I, I kind of feel like it was kept under wraps. Let's describe the horn. The horn was huge, eight feet along the curve and so wide at the mouth that he could have put his arm inside up to the elbow. If this came from an oryx, it was the biggest that ever lived. At first, he thought the bands around it were bronze, but when he looked closer, he realized they were gold, old gold, more brown than yellow and graven with ruins. Since John doubts it came from an aurochs, what then? I posed this question to our Facebook group and 
a couple people did some research and some guessing. Our best guess from folks like I think it was Marin Mehus and Nina guessed that uh, mammoth tusk is probably the most likely. Mammoth tusks in real life absolutely can get that big, even bigger. That would work. Another suggestion comes from John Hagee, who says, look, there's woolly mammoths in the real world, or there were, and there were also real woolly rhinos. Maybe there were woolly rhinos up and beyond the wall. Related to that, Tommy Pappas suggests the Skagosi unicorns. Now, current-sized ones probably aren't big enough, but there's a bigger version of almost everything that used to exist, right? There used to be huge lions, the great lions. There used to be uh, dire wolves, which are bigger wolves, basically. They're a different species, sure, but they're also just larger wolves. So maybe there were also larger versions of the Skagosi slash goat unicorns, which is similar to a woolly rhino in concept. So those are complementary ideas. Good thoughts, y'all. Gives you good reason to be joining our groups and getting discussions like that. Now, Mance's ultimatum regarding the horn, this is a different point. It's it's pretty risky gambit. I don't think a whole lot of it, if, if I'm being honest. I think Mance had limited options, though. So I, I don't think it was a bad plan in that he had better plans, but I don't think it was very likely to work because, as they say, they want to hide behind the wall. They want to hide on the other side of it, so they really don't want to bring it down. Plus, it's disputable, very, very disputable that the Night's Watch will buy the idea that this horn will do what they say it will. I mean, someone like Maester Eamon's a little concerned, John's a little concerned, but guys like Alistair Thorne, Janos Slint, for once, they might be in the right to downplay the possibility that this horn is of any matter at all, that it's just a horn. Yeah, so that makes it a flawed plan if you're like going to intimidate someone with the power of this horn. If they don't believe in the power of the horn, then it's not very intimidating, is it? And this is part of why John asked Mance if he's a true king. Because true king, I think, in this context is about protecting their people. That's number one on the list of what makes you a true king. It's what Stan has finally realized what Davos convinced him of was a true king protects people and thus heading to the wall is behaving like a true king. Mance is doing a similar thing. He headed to the wall to protect his people. But of course, the circumstances are different and why they're there is different, but it's still to protect his people. It's a king protecting his people. The mention of the Horned Lord by Dalla is interesting. The Horned Lord comes up a few times. She says it's he who coined the phrase sorcery is a sword without a hilt. But on the other hand, though, he's cited as a king beyond the wall who used sorcery to bypass the wall. What is, does that mean the Horn Lord was someone very deep in sorcery that understood both its powers and its shortcomings and its things that could come and bite you in the butt later? The, the high cost of it? Or is this just another example of cleverness called sorcery? Right? That's a recurring theme where someone can't explain something so they call it sorcery. What did Tyrion say? It was the, the sauce there to hide their own failure. Nick's like, oh, it was sorcery. It was sorcery. <laughs> Rob Stark turned into a wolf. What could we do? Let's talk about the others for a minute. Again, we got the horn. We got the others. We got kings. We got Melisandre's firepower. We got skin changing. There's a lot of supernatural in this chapter. So yeah, why not the others too? In fact, the quote starts. The others 
They grow stronger as the days grow shorter and the nights colder. First they kill you, then they send your dead against you. The giants have not been able to stand against them, nor the Thens, the Ice River clans, the Hornfoots. Nor you? Nor me. There was anger in that admission, bitterness too deep for words. Raymond Redbeard, Bale the Bard, Gendel and Gorn, the Horned Lord, they all came south to conquer, but I've come with my tail between my legs to hide behind your wall. John sees the banners of a seahorse. That's House Valerian. A field of birds, almost certainly House Karen. A ring of flowers, either House Meadows or maybe Florent. Uh, maybe he just didn't see the fox in the middle. So a lot of houses that have been with Stannis for quite a while and still fighting with him. Be curious to see what happens to them later. Some of them have already had their seats given away. So I wonder if they'll get them back. Maybe undoing Tommen's decrees will come into that as well. Some of them were Joffrey's decrees, but hey, same difference. If Tommen's decrees are undone, Joffrey's would be for the same reason, vis-a-vis not actually being Robert's son. When John is elected, Mormont's Raven will be the most part of his campaign, not including Sam, who is easily the most important part. And Sam will say, though, that he had nothing to do with the Raven. And he's not lying, because we see Sam's point of view, and he is as baffled as anyone by the Raven participating in the campaigning. It's possible the Raven is Mormont's second life, but I lean even more towards it being the influence of Blood Raven. That Raven is going to yell snow and kettle and get John a lot of votes. Now here, as John is walking to Mance's tent through the carnage of recent battles, he sees a Raven eating from a giant skull and it yells snow at him three times. Is this Mormont's Raven? Maybe, maybe not, because we've been told Mormont's Raven isn't a big fan of meat. But hey, if he's out in the wild like that, he's got to eat what he can. There's no corn around. But still, it's a slight piece of evidence in the other direction for who that Raven is. Now, the first chapter in A Dance with Dragons, John's first chapter, that is, starts with him dreaming of Ghost and Shaggy Dog and Nymeria. And in his dream, the moon keeps saying snow. Then he wakes up to find... Mormont's raven is yelling snow at him. So the raven was that moon in terms of his dream, like half dream, half awake state. So clearly, by that point, Mormont's raven is just chilling with John all the time. So it could be this is the first moment in which that their newfound friendship or companionship begins. Otherwise, it's just another random raven that said some words, which wouldn't be the first time, but... Worth considering. Speaking of dreams, Dollars Ed has one where he's peeing off the wall. Hey, kind of like Tyrion. Actually, Tyrion never did that. But (laughs) anyway, while he's dreaming of peeing off the wall, the horn is blown. And well, that's not a good place to be if a horn, the horn takes down the wall. So hmm. if Sam has the real horn and he takes it down south with him and, you know, fixes it or something, well, anyone standing on the wall when that happens, is in big trouble. But I still struggle with the idea of a horn used to control dragons and a horn that brings down the wall. I favor the combination of the two. A horn that controls dragons and then that dragon brings down the wall. That maybe makes more sense. Obviously, it's closer to what we saw in the show too. So that's a little bit of extra evidence. But there's a lot of possibilities. There's no, by no means is that the only one. It's just kind of where my head canon lies at the moment. One way or another, though, whatever the mechanism is, 
It's hard to imagine the others not getting through eventually somehow, whether it's the entire wall coming down or just a breach or something like that. They're getting through one way or another. As for the battle itself, Stannis does what he, what Mormont wanted to do, as I brought this up already in a different sense with the assassination of Mance, but it's the similar plan. Strike at the head of Mance's army done in a way that they can't use their great numbers at once. Mance's armies, even though it's more organized than it was when it was on the march, it's still very spread out and unprepared for this. This is a real surprise, unlike Mormont's attempt, which was not a surprise because the wildlings were very aware of their presence. And it's is also more effective because it's a real surprise and there's more men. Stannis doesn't have a ton of men, but he has way more than the rangers had and they're better equipped and both in horses, armor, and weapons and Melisandre. Not only is Vermeer blasted out of the sky, but he loses some of his other animals too. We don't see it, but he explains later that his snow bear kills four people before being killed itself. The shadow cat just runs off into the woods. So yeah, like I said, the free folk would have trouble facing heavy cavalry, even with preparations. And they were surprised. So there's no preparation. So this is extra devastating. Remember too, like giving another example, a much smaller mounted force led by Ramsay Snow defeated that unsuspecting, mostly unmounted force led by Sir Roderick outside Winterfell. That was something like, well, Ramsay said they had three times his men. So I think it was like 200 versus 600 or something like that. I'm not sure. But in any case, he was outnumbered three to one. On the other side, the giants and mammoths are the only force that can stand against Stannis' army, particularly all that heavy cavalry. But since they're the only portion of Mance's army that can stand up against this, they're eventually defeated too because, well, by themselves, they're just not enough. But as usual, Battles, despite being action-oriented and, you know, it's harder to work in deep character conflict and parallels, George still manages to do that, even in these little battles. I think, as much as we were just talking in Jamie chapter about Tywin guessing where Stannis would go and being wrong, but correctly guessing accidentally where the Golden Company and Aegon are going to land, I'm reminded of that because of seeing the mammoths in action here. Not just seeing how effective they are, but particularly seeing the fact that they cause problems for warhorses. The warhorses were devastating in this battle, except for against the mammoths, because the warhorses are afraid of the mammoths. Warhorses aren't afraid of much, and warhorses who have been trained around mammoths will get used to it. But when they're seeing them for the first time, they're like, oh, that's terrifying. It's not just their size, but their smell, apparently. And why is this relevant? Well, the same is going to be true of the elephants brought across the water by the Golden Company. In this battle, we see a knight tossed 40 feet by a mammoth's trunk. Well, I bet we see something along those lines or that kind of possibility when the Golden Company's elephants go up against the Knights of the Reach and the Stormlands and what have you. Many more knights and warhorses are going to learn what it's like to face that. And hey, I hope Lena Headey reads about it. <laughs> Kaelisi Tarverian says, Aemon Targaryen, John thought, a king's son and a king's brother and a king who might have been, but he said nothing. Oh, great catch. I can't believe I didn't cite that line because John himself might be Aemon Targaryen. Something we're going to talk about even more in Sam's chapter, by the way. It's a huge part of our Sam's chapter discussion, Sam 4. 
but this is a great catch. A king's son, king's brother, and a king who might have been. So he's son to a king in that he's son to Rhaegar, who would have been king. He's a king's brother in that he's, you know, brother to Aemon, or brother to Rob. And, and yeah, I guess he could be potentially brother to young, uh, to baby Aegon. Yeah, because that would have been his uh, older brother. Sort of, if Bran becomes king, sort of in the same way Rob, because they're not, they're not technically brothers, but he thinks of it. It's close enough, right? As far as for parallel purposes. Either way, brothers. he's all, all wrapped up in kings. Yes, it's, he's very similar to Aemon in that sense. I still think he's going to go by John, no matter what his intended name from his parents may have been. But it's a fun debate what that name could have been. Yeah, I, I think I just, at this point, just want us to not, for him to not have an original name. Hmm, interesting. Just, I do think that Aegon fits nicely, but Bella Reredus has shown a lot more evidence for Aemon. Like us going through it, it looks, if, if it's like, and, you know, like you say too, it could be neither. But Visenya. Visenyo. <laughs> and a king who might have been, right? Of course, as John is not unlikely to be seen that way. If the show is even close to accurate, John will be king in the north, but not king on the Iron Throne. Yeah, and I think that's pretty likely that John will never actually sit the Iron Throne. So he. Nor will he keep his throne. Right. And so that makes him similar to Aemon Targaryen because the throne was offered to Aemon, Maester Aemon, and he refused. That sounds pretty similar to what might be happening to John later when he's offered the chance and, and turns it down. Kind of like how he offers the chance to be a Stark and turns it down to stay Lord Commander. In part because of the compromises he's asked to make. Hmm. Tormund says Mance will make a song of Mag the Mighty's fight with Donald Noy. I hope he does, but so far he hasn't. Not that we've seen any. John thinks of Rob returning north in his dreams. He still doesn't know about the Red Wedding at this point, or the Purple Wedding, but he's probably going to learn off page after this chapter. As we see in Sam's chapter, he seems to know by then, and it's probably just because everyone in Stannis' army knows. So that news had to be passed on to them. A quote uh, was noted in our flick group. When he looked straight down past his feet, the ground was lost in shadow as if he were being lowered into some bottomless pit. Well... Death is a bottomless pit of sorts, he reflected. So John's death foreshadowed pretty clearly right there. And the bottomless pit, somewhat relating to Varamir's take on it being super cold and dark when he has his death. Oh, and Kaylee Tarvarian points out, brother to a king will also apply to John. It was Stephanie... Uh, the peerless who cited Girls Gone Canon as the influence for another idea relating to Thorn and Slint's diabolical plan to get John killed, which is that they didn't want these negotiations to take place at all. They didn't want to negotiate with the free folk. I mean, Thorn flat out said, or Slint flat out said, Jano Slint does not negotiate with savages. By, if John goes out there, meaning an envoy goes there, tries to kill Mance, and is himself killed, not only have they gotten rid of John, they've shut down negotiations. Why would Mance listen to another negotiator if the first one comes and tries to kill him? So it's kind of like killing two birds with one snow. Uh, stone. Nah. And on the other side of things, Tree Girl, with a great catch, points out that Tormund as the envoy for the Free Folk meeting John is not just a happy accident. It's not just like, oh, lucky for John, it was Tormund. No. That's probably on purpose. Mance almost certainly sent Tormund 
to meet with whoever because they didn't know it was going to be John that showed up. In fact, they were surprised it was John. Tormund's friendly. Just, he's personable. He's amiable. He's a good choice to be envoy. So, man, yeah, it works out. And a lot of people in our different discussion groups expressed a love slash sadness for Tormund and John and their toasting of Ygritte. And Joe Buckley points out this kind of thing is important later because John and Tormund's friendship is a big deal in negotiating the rest of the free folks' migration to the other side of the wall. And Tormund's trust of John is important. They trust each other's word, and that is crucial. All right, that's it for John 10. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Aria 13, the one where Sandor gets no mercy, aka have coin will travel. Another transition in terms of her immediate company, ending with a major change in location. But the chapter begins back at a place familiar since book one. We saw this area in Sansa 1, a Game of Thrones, when Arya's friend Micah is killed by Sandor and Nymeria is made to run off. Fittingly, Arya has another dream of her wolf here in this one, though it's only one line long. And neither Sandor nor Arya seem to realize that they're so close to where all this happened. Neither of them seem to make any straight reference to it. I think Sandor kind of knows because he knows where they're near salt pans. He knows this is the end of the crossroads. It's kind of a famous inn, but neither of them mention it. So it's up to us to figure it out. One of the easy ways for us to figure out, though, is this first line. Outside the inn on a weathered gibbet, a woman's bones for twisting and rattling at every gust of wind. That is indeed Masha Heddle hanged by Tywin back in the Game of Thrones for the crime of owning the inn where Tyrion was seized. As we know, she tried to stop it. She was powerless too, but she didn't want it to happen. She knew there would be pushback. She was right. It's Arya's final chapter of the book. It's second longest among her 13 chapters. It's just shorter than Arya 2, which is the gang is captured by the Brotherhood, aka the one where Harwin recognizes Arya. That one takes place at the end of The Kneeling Man, and this one takes place at the end of The Crossroads. So not only is it her last chapter, but it's really a conclusion of two books worth of arc instead of just one, because Arya's time in the Riverlands, well, she's been in the Riverlands for all of Clash and Storm, and it's right at the beginning of Clash she starts in the Riverlands as she's leaving with Yorin. And right here in her last chapter, she just gets on the ship as the chapter is ending. So it's like, Every little bit of, of her two books arc is in the Riverlands. And she comes back full circle because she meets some of her original antagonists. She's already with Sandor, one of the, mo- one of the most original antagonists, but far worse antagonists, far more brutal, and ones that she actually wants to kill, unlike Sandor. These are the mountain's men. This is helping her kind of recover a key element of herself that was lost back in Clash. Uh, before saying goodbye to that, which we, she, she has known for so long. It's a very fast-paced chapter. Joe Buckley points out that considering the structure of a lot of recent chapters, especially hers, this is just, there's no setup at all. I mean, it's not a bad thing. It's just an interesting choice by George. Right 
off the bat, we see the skeleton and they're walking into the inn. I mean, boom. There's no lead-in to approaching this inn. It's just, there it is. And immediately, Sandor is confronted with the mountain's men. Just within like three paragraphs, it's like, oh, this is going to happen. And then within a few more paragraphs, they're fighting. And it's a different style to what we've been seeing lately. And Joe suggests maybe it's intentional to fit along with how Arya is thinking. Still feeling shell-shocked, still empty. Not much time for thinking and reflection. And bam, things like this happen. Talk about not having time for thought or reflection. Before the fight, the Mountain's men fill out the story of the final, well, so far final, taking of Harrenhal. Very good chance it changes hands again, if not multiple times. And some bits and pieces of the Riverlands campaign are spilled by Polliver and the Tickler as well. Combined with what we heard in the Jamie and Tyrion chapters before this, we've got a very full picture about what's going on in the Riverlands. The Brackens are fighting the Blackwoods at Raventree Hall, which we heard a little bit about. And we're gonna, that's going to get settled when Jamie goes there in a dance with dragons. We get a different view of the retaking of Harrenhal, though. It will change hands again, but not by force. This version's a lot bloodier <laughs> that we hear about what they did to the castle staff and those few men that didn't stay with Hote. And of course, the awful things done to Hote that not too many people were concerned about because of how awful he was. But currently, where things stand in the story now, the Holy Hundred under Sir Bonifer Hasty are holding Hall in Littlefinger's name, as of course he is Lord by law, also for now. Now the Starks have a claim to Hall. That slides under the radar. Now you might be saying, well, how exactly do they have a claim to Hall? Well, don't forget, their grandmother was a Wendt. The Wents were the family to hold the castle before Lord Baelish. And Baelish has no heirs. And again, we return to the, maybe the decree giving him Hall will be declared invalid or at least just undone and given to somebody else. That is referenced here very indirectly through Polliver in a quote we just love. I forgot you've been hiding under a rock. The Northern girl, Winterfell's daughter. We heard she killed the king with a spell and afterward changed into a wolf with big leather wings like a bat and flew out a tower window. But she left the dwarf behind, and Cersei means to have his head. <laughs> the reference is in those big leather wings like a bat. Nine bats are the sigil of House Went. Again, that's Sansa's grandmother's family. The Wents inherited Hall after the prior owners lost it after over a hundred years, apparently thanks to using spells. That would be Mad Donnell Lofton, and their sigil was a single bat. So again, we have a reference to spells because there's the joke about, yeah, killed the king with a spell. Prior to the Lothstons, Hall stood unowned for a time after being ruled for a different stretch by yet another wielder of spells, Alice Rivers, the so-called witch queen of Hall and lover of Prince Aemond Targaryen during the Dance of the Dragons. We have an episode on her as part of our Fire and Blood series. The magical legacy of Hall is perhaps carried on by Kyburn, who named the undead Gregor Sir Robert Strong, and how strong was the house to hold Hall before House Lofton. Polliver says they'll track down Sansa, but they've already found Arya and are marrying her to Ramsay. <laughs> this confuses Arya because she's not marrying Ramsay, but it's important enough 
even though she doesn't figure out what's happening or what it means, she knows someone is being forced to impersonate her. And that will have implications later, most likely. Arya is perhaps briefly confused by Sansa laughing about the Sansa Tyrion situation, but Nina suggests Sandor might be very disturbed by that news, hearing that Sansa was married to Tyrion because, well, he's got sympathy for her. He likes her. And he immediately pounds two cups of wine after hearing that. Now, he was just pounding wine anyway. Joe suggests that's possibly because he's an alcoholic. And that's why he was so heedless and just went in the inn without even being worried about what might happen. And Sandor does point out he's glad that Sansa got away. Uh, Another hint. This is also the first time Sandor calls Arya as girl to other people. He had called Arya girl privately, but now he openly refers to her as a girl, whereas before people were mistaking her for a boy and they were just fine to let people believe that. Sandor just seems to care less and less. He's running out of options. He's hurting internally and possibly like we just suggested, he's perhaps dealing with alcoholism. And he does seem to have kind of a death wish. And this is very apparent by this chapter. He walks in, gets drunk, and then just is happily fights these men that (laughs) he's not prepared to fight because he's so drunk. Not to be outdone by his brother, too, right? Sandor has a bloody fight not long after Gregor has a bloody fight. Both of them are permanently damaged because of the fight, and both of them suffer greatly because of it. And not to be outdone by his, her sister, Arya boards the Titan's daughter, a role Sansa is pretending to, to be. Like she's pretending to be the Titan's daughter, sort of, <laughs> because of Baelish's sigil being the Titan. I very much appreciate the way George R. R. Martin shows Arya's thought process. She's been trained to respond to fear by controlling it. And not only has she been actively working on that discipline, working on her fear, controlling it whenever it comes along, well, Given where she's been, she's had a lot of opportunities to field test this handling of fear. And there's a major one right here. The look he gave her was cold with promise. Is there gold hidden in the village? She could hear him ask. The stupid squire was clutching the edge of a table and pulling himself to his knees. Arya could taste the beginnings of panic in the back of her throat. Fear cuts deeper than swords. Fear cuts deeper. She's keeping it together, but it's enough that the mantra is slightly off. She starts to, she fumbles it slightly, which is a kind of a neat way for George to display or suggest how thin this line is of, of managing her fear. Because this guy, amongst all the people she's encountered, the tickler, is one of the most frightening. I mean, he's the torturer. He's the guy that she saw every day torture helpless villagers multiple times, multiple villagers, multiple days, and made worse by the anxiety of thinking maybe she's next or one of her friends is next. I again turn to a comparison to the Red Viper because whenever we talk about revenge versus justice, well, that's a seminal example of where, is the, where does one begin and the other end and should we even try to separate them? Is it futile? Is, it, there's, is there a point to it? The two over, always overlap a little bit when it's personal. The Red Viper wanted to savor his revenge over the mountain, but he vented his long pent-up rage and frustration throughout the battle. He's yelling his taunt repeatedly. You raped her. You murder her. Now, what's happening in this end of the crossroads is no trial by combat, but there is a measure of justice and revenge 
And it's certainly kill or be killed in this scenario. Like Oberyn Martell, she vents quite a lot as well. The way she yells the tickler's own questions back at him while stabbing him is extremely powerful and potent and very similar type of relief. This fear and anger and frustration, maybe a little less fear on the Red Viper side, but still similar set of emotions held for quite a while. Pure emotion, pure rage. Everything since the day her father died comes out all at once. And again, at first glance, well, it's just like the sense of whether it's revenge or justice. We can't fully celebrate this moment. Yeah, we're glad the tickler is gone. No doubt that guy taken out, good thing. But you also have a 10-year-old girl just covered in blood having stabbed someone. It it doesn't matter that she's a girl, just a 10-year-old. Just a, a young person killing people. That's not ideal, obviously. It shouldn't be the 10-year-olds that we rely on to kill the torturers of the world, right? It should be the 12-year-olds. It should be the 12-year-olds or the 13-year-olds. At least wait till they're teenagers, right? Her frenzy is both an expression of how deeply she's convinced he deserves to die and how scared she is of what he'll do to her if she doesn't kill him. That's the part that's a little different to Oberyn because he, he was a little too unafraid of dying. She may yet do more that reminds us vaguely of Oberyn Martell's revenge and poison killing Lannisters. I mean, those things could be in Arya's future and Oberyn from the the land beyond could be like, yes, I like this girl. Good job. (laughs) Both justice and revenge here and you don't know where one begins and the other ends. And like I said, when I started this section, maybe we don't need to. In a better world, the tickler would be tried and convicted for his atrocities. But this isn't a better world. If you have a chance to remove an evil person from the world, do it. Don't rely on someone else to do that for you when you have the chance because, well, that's how good needs to be done in a world like this that is so starved for good deeds. So yeah, Arya's not all about revenge, but she's some about revenge. Polliver and the Tickler were on her list. And that list has always been part justice, part revenge. Now, getting Needle back will also help her, and it serves to restore a piece of her lost Stark identity. It's this time she spent in the Riverlands left her in a constant, deep, and intense fear, and it's very much at the feet of the mountain and his men, among others. So it's, it's also just so poignant that Needle, she lost Needle, like, pretty early. Not right away, but pretty early on in the process in the Riverlands, and she's getting it back right as she's leaving. Now, even after she's going to learn a lot more discipline at the House of Black and White, she's still going to risk the wrath of the faceless men by killing Wrath the Sweetling in Bravos while he's guarding the Master of Coin during a play. Again, justice and revenge. And let's be honest, for her, it seems justice is enough reason. But revenge is part of it. After all, she killed Darian, the singer of the Night's Watch, without any personal reasons. Maybe it was a little personal because she knows John is the Lord Commander and, and this Darian fellow... Uh, deserted her brother. But mm, it still seems more like a a justice thing. Like, well, he's a traitor to the watch and that's what happens to them. But the faceless men didn't appreciate it when she killed Darian without permission and they're not going to like it when she killed Raph the Sweetling. So we'll see what happens there. It may be like this chapter, the beginning of Arya moving on again, meaning she may not be welcome in that locale. Leaving Sander was also 
part vindictive and part justice. She herself isn't sure. Again, for maybe the fifth time, I'll say it. Neither can we be sure. Sandor ends his A Storm of Swords story not much different in outward appearance from where he started it, too. This isn't just about Arya kind of going through this cycle again and coming full circle. It's, it's for him. As he left King's Landing after the Battle of Blackwater, he was alone and out of it under a tree in the Riverlands, captured, then captured by the Brother Without Banners. Now here, he's going to be alone and out of it under a tree in the Riverlands, kind of having given up also, but he'll be found by someone that doesn't give up on him, someone that doesn't take him as a hostage, someone that doesn't steal his money. That's Elder Brother. And of course, he doesn't die. I doubt he bears a grudge against Arya for this, even though he suffered. After all, it's not really the kind of man he is. He understands this sort of thing. He understands that she has legitimate complaints against him. The description of pouring boiling wine into his wounds is almost as visceral as the fight where he got those wounds. What with Arya, you know, burning her knuckles on the, the hound's helm and him beating his fist on the ground while biting a carefully chosen stick, which I think is a, a little bit of a joke by George R. R. Martin. He sneaks in a little humor there. Sandor is choosy about a stick that he's going to bite on. And he's a hound. He's a dog. Dogs are well known for being particular about sticks, aren't they? <laughs> they get very choosy. Like, I want that stick. I don't, another stick won't do. That's the stick for me. <laughs> I like that a lot. It's a, George manages to sneak little cute moments like that into really terrible, <laughs> tragic mo- moments otherwise. The wound of his that she says smells funny is the one on his leg. And that's surely why he has a limp when Brienne finds him at the Quiet Isle much later. Recall too, though, when Arya was near here with her family back in early Game of Thrones, she told Sansa that she was looking for Rhaegar's rubies. Not long after that, Mike is killed by the Hound. So again, this is pretty near where that happened. Now, when Brienne finds the Quiet Isle, Elder Brother will tell her that they've found six of Rhaegar's rubies and are waiting for the seventh. The seventh from Rhaegar, well, that could be a nod to Jon Snow, especially if he's Aegon the seventh, but it still works if he's just Rhaegar's ruby <laughs> in, his own, in his own light. So Arya makes her way to salt pans after six days on her own uh, and one with the Hound after his injury. So another seven, hey. She finds salt pans in really bad shape, but sad to say it's going to get worse. Some of the Brave Companions fugitives, the ones who fled Harrenhal and Vargo Hote's command before the mountain and his men could kill them all, raid salt pans during a feast for crows. Those men will inflict brutal atrocities on salt pans and the leader of that group is Rorge, and he's going to do these atrocities while wearing the Hound's helmet, which is going to blacken the, the Hound's name and reputation even more, but clearly unfairly, since he has nothing to do with this. And this is foreshadowed, interestingly, in this chapter by Arya heating the boiling wine in his helmet. But look what happens to the helmet as she's heating it. He didn't like the first two sticks she brought him. By the time she found one that suited him, the flames had scorched the dog's snout black all the way to the eyes. Yeah, blackening reputation, blackening helm. Meh. Too bad she couldn't have freed Jock and Hagar without freeing Rorge. <laughs> then he'd have been burned up long before any of this. He would have been the thing blackened his body and a lot of pain would have been avoided. But hey, that's not how it went. This horse-selling woman who cheats Arya is an example of the type of casual, top-down cruelty that exists on a smaller scale in almost any society, but especially authoritarian ones, and especially 
during a crisis. Ahem, real world. This woman forces Ari to accept a bad price for her horse or else face justice. It's kind of an impossible choice. It's really, really unfair. She's like, oh, you found that horse, so you don't get full price for it. Oh, you get full price for it because she found it? How's that any more fair? Scavenging battlefields is completely acceptable and typical. And stray horses are not strange during war at all. We've seen lots of them. So Arya isn't eligible to claim this collateral wandering around because she's lowborn? Is that really how it works? Man, that's something about that scene is very frustrating. But you know, it's it's kind of thing that's happening all over and in the real world. It's one of the, uh, compared to a bunch of other things going on, it's, it's uh, pretty mild. True. It's a very mild form of like price gouging or, or this is kind of reverse price gouging, but still a similar thing, you know, like profiteering off people's uh, misfortune. So Arya wanted to go to Eastwatch so she could make her way to John. Now that's where Stannis' family was. Stannis would have loved that. Immediately he'd have proof that Ramsay's Arya is fake. That would have been a windfall for him. She still may yet cross paths with Stannis' people, or if not Stannis himself, as, let's not forget, Justin Massey was sent to the free cities to hire sellswords, and that's being facilitated by the Iron Bank. And that's what we just discussed. Arya has just screwed up her relationship with the Faceless Men in connection, perhaps, with the Iron Bank because of she killed a guard for a man who's there to visit the Iron Bank. And of course, Justin Massey is there to visit the Iron Bank too. So all sorts of stuff could happen there. Arya is probably going to be involved somehow. And it's an iron coin she uses to buy passage too. And that coin was perhaps minted by the Iron Bank on behalf of the Faceless Men. And that's something else we'll be keeping a lookout for as we go forward. The relationship between the Faceless Men and the Iron Bank. It's got to be something. Might be a major connection. Might not be quite so major. We did cover that separately in, a, in our Fire and Blood series along with the Witch Queen of Hall episode, we have a Faceless Man and Iron Bank episode. And here is the quote of her handing over the coin. She pressed it into his hand, the small black iron coin that Jake and Hagar had given her. So worn, the man whose head it bore had no features. Of course, even the person on the Faceless Man coin is faceless. <laughs> of course it is, <laughs> George. Do you think it came like that or it actually wore away? Uh, I know, that's a good question. I think it might have probably come that way. Yeah, or you just wouldn't have known. Yeah, she would think it was worn, but it was... Because she's you, every other coin she's ever seen had a, a face that, wasn't, <laughs> that was not started that way. <laughs> I absolutely love the way the captain reacts. He's just like, how the hell do you have this coin? <laughs> but notice he doesn't assume she just found it like the horse seller did. <laughs> and of course, she will have a cabin. And uh, Joe points out there's a little bit of a, a parallel to Tyrion here, kind of similar how she just kills some people that she's been wanting to kill for a while, some revenge killing, and then piecing out of Westeros altogether. Uh, the squire. The pimply squire. He plays an important role in this short time in the stage. It's a good comparison to the type of people now roaming over the Riverlands, just picking through the leftovers. He's like a, a crow picking on corpses. He's obviously a cocky little so-and-so because probably all he knows is victory. Not even victory, but just walking around with people like Tolliver and, and the Tickler being able to take what they want. It's gone to his head. You can see it. And it, like the way he talks to Sandor. I mean, that's, he's an idiot. <laughs> but he's also just a young boy. So it's another example of who you fall in with can have a huge example on how a huge 
influence on how you turn out. I mean, it, it, would this Sarsfield kid have turned out so crappily if he had been raised by Ned Stark? I mean, maybe Theon still turned out crappily, but Theon was already 10. Still, it, nature versus nurture. You can't say that nature would have, or that nurture would have made him a good kid, but yeah, there's no way that Polliver and the Tickler are an ideal pair of influences. That's about as bad as it gets. I mean, they, he behaves like one of them. So that's clearly where he learned it, I would think. But it's also sad, right? This is just a young person, like, like Joffrey. And I think this is about the same age person. You're conflicted by rooting for the death of a child, even though it's a really awful child. But it is a child. And it's like, well, this just says a lot about the world that we're reading about. Because this, this world produces awful kids because, well, they came from awful families slash awful situations slash whatever. Lots of awful. Ari, here's the news about Joffrey's death. And it's part of why I brought that up because we've got a similar age person dying here. Here's the quote. Joffrey's dead. She knew it ought to make her happy, but somehow she still felt empty inside. Joffrey was dead. But if Rob was dead too, what did it matter? Good point. Arya is thinking through this vengeance-justice combo and it's really important because she's on, on track to be a killer, someone who deals out death on notions like justice or mercy. So it's really important for her to have these concepts straight in her mind and to think them through. I'm, you, I like to see it. It's kind of like Daenerys where even as there's signs of destructiveness coming, she's still thinking of goodness and trying to work through it. And she has the instincts to do good even while things are chaotic and terrifying all around. Arya gets confirmation that when she, even using lies and threats to get Gendry and Hot Pie to leave Harrenhal, she was right. If they had stayed, Gregor's men would have probably killed them when they took the castle from Hote, as is explained in this chapter. The news of fake Arya, of course, let's return to that. That comes up. Sandor obviously laughs because he loves seeing the Lannisters screw that up. Of course, he doesn't realize it's not a screw up. It's a ploy. But it's also perhaps rueful laughter because it makes his plan to sell Arya for ransom even harder. It's been getting more and more hard over time as the options for where to ransom her has been falling apart. And now there's a fake Arya out there that's, that's not going to make selling Arya any easier. A little funny joke by George R. Martin there, the, the house... The House Sarsfield is a green arrow, represented by a green arrow, and George R. Martin has revealed that it's a reference to the comic book hero, character Green Arrow. <laughs> so it's intentionally set up that way. That's pretty cool. The captain of the Titan's daughter mentions seeing a dozen ships head north around Crackclaw Point, and he assumes they're pirates. They probably were pirates, but pirates under the employ of Stannis Baratheon who very soon will return to being pirates because Salador San is going to quit Stannis' cause early in uh, Feast for Crows. And the Titan's daughter is correct to avoid them since, like I said, Salador is going back to piracy. And that is it for the final Arya chapter in A Storm of Swords. When we come back to Arya in A Feast for Crows, things are going to look a lot different, yet they'll look the same. Samuel Four. The gang calls a vote a.k.a. the one where Sam thinks of the children. Sam has 10 chapters total in A Storm of Swords and A Feast for Crows. 
And this is the shortest of them all. For the most part, it's a fairly straightforward chapter. A lot of it is setting up his last chapter for next week. But there's one really, really huge multi-parallel story hidden in plain sight in this chapter. Let's get into it. You'll remember, uh, well, first of all, a few other details we'll set up. You'll remember some weeks ago, we talked about Sansa having a huge gap in this book. 31 chapters straight without a POV from Sansa. That's the longest I think we, we were able to find an example of. Sam comes up pretty close here, 29 chapters before the last Sam chapter. That's back when he was attacked by Whites with Gilly. And that's a big gap, even if he does appear in between there in Bran's chapter. It's also the one where our pattern of beginning each chapter with the first line gets a little awkward, quote. He sucks harder than mine. <laughs> that's what she said. Yes, that is what she said. Gilly. I think it's really a he said, because <laughs> like if he sucks harder, you know, like okay. I, I don't want to get into this too much, but it's a he, it's said, a he. he, he said, she said situation. No, it's a sure. he said and he said he two said. men, clearly. <laughs> I already, you stole my joke. I, I, re, I literally have he said, he said written later in this chapter. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for setting it up for me. Yeah. It's not a steal. It's, it's, it's groundwork. It's foreshadowing. So this child, born in battle. This is quite a bit of setup for John unwittingly replaying the events of the Tower of Joy and his own hidden parentage. John himself may have been born during battle at the Tower of Joy too. And both their mothers died in childbirth, both Dalla and Liana. And what is this kid going to be named? A lot of people have forgotten what Manzandala's boy is called, but his name is Eamon. Eamon Steelsong. And we don't find that out until later because the free folk think it's bad luck to give a kid a name this early. Not until his third year do they do it. But I'm going to call him Eamon now because I don't want to call him Dalla and Mance's kid. That's awkward. So we'll just call him Eamon. And remember, we've been talking about it already this episode, Jon Snow. That might have been his intended name or his actual name. Anyway, more Eamon Steel song to Jon Snow parallels, though. Instead of Willow the wet nurse, we have Gilla performing the duties of a wet nurse. Instead of Ned, we have Sam. And they'll be going you to Old Town. You just said Gilla. Did I say Gilla, really? Yeah, you said Gilla. That's funny. <laughs> Willa and Gilla. Yeah, Willie and Gilly. Willie and Gilla. <laughs> so they're, they're going to be heading to Old Town, where there's a tower much taller than the Tower of Joy. But still, it's part of the parallel here. Then they're going to go on to Horn Hill, where they'll tell a lie about who the boy's father and mother are. Even the boy himself will be misled as to who his parents are. They'll say he's the son of a noble house and a wet nurse rather than the son of royalty. Hello, Rhaegar and Lyanna Mansendala, son of royalty. The person claiming to be the father, Sam or Ned, really aren't the type to father children out of wedlock, but they are both the protective types. As part of their journey, Ned and Sam both slew a foe armored all in white who was wielding a special sword, a foe that many would have said was unkillable. That's right, Ned slew Sir Arthur Dane, Sam slew an other. Both of them had help. Small Paul disarmed the other, and there were other companions with Sam, like Gren, around there. And Howland Reed helped Ned by doing something. We don't know what, but it was something. Ned's very specific about that. Now, Small Paul had to be killed all over again, Luckily for Ned and Howland, as far as we know, they did not have to face an undead sword of the morning or any sort of reanimated Kingsguard, though such does exist in the form of Robert Strong. <laughs> and he is rather large, small Paul-sized, but 
that's a different parallel altogether. Let's not get off track. As for the real fathers of Eamon Steelsong and Jon Snow, one could think of the many Rhaegar to Mance parallels here as well. There's a lot of them, but just as succinct as possible, men of destiny unachieved, black and red, coloring, winged helms, loved music and playing it and singing it. Why is the child to be sent away in the first place? John was sent away because Ned was worried about what Robert would do. And ditto. This child's being sent away because they're afraid of what Stannis, under Mel's influence, but still Stannis would be the one to give the order, will do to the child. They're worried about violence done to the child. So in both cases, it's a Baratheon. So it's like a five-headed pentagon of parallels. The real fathers, Mance and Rhaegar, the fake fathers, Ned and Sam, the real mothers, Lyanna and Dalla, the fake mothers slash wet nurses, Gilly and Willa, then the children themselves, perhaps a pair of Amons, whether their names are both Amon or not, there's a billion other parallels here. That is a lot of parallels. Very impressive, George R. Martin. You guys know I'm a rather obsessive in looking for this sort of parallel, but out of all the examples in all the books, this is one of the more intricately crafted ones because it's set up with these pairings. There's all these multiple connections. I don't even know what the right words to use for this is. It's just so cool. And if you missed this, don't feel bad. So did John. This is as far as he gets. Quote. It's strange, he said to Sam. Craster had no love for Mance, nor Mance for Craster. But now Craster's daughter is feeding Mance's son. It's like George is trying to see these parallels, but it's hard to explain them when none of the characters see them. <laughs> and this is, so this is as far as he can take us without saying things that are a bit unrealistic for these characters to say. Ned Stark, an honest man, I'll agree. <laughs> this is wonderful. Stannis will say in the very next chapter to John. Quote, Your father was no friend of mine, but only a fool would doubt his honor or his honesty. Well, Ned clearly lied at least that one time for a good purpose, a point made in this chapter when Sam asks, John, could there be honor in a lie if it were told for a, a good purpose? Oh, man, <laughs> it's just so good. Sam has another secret to keep, of course, that of Bran and cold hands and such. It's another freaking parallel to all this. It's promise me, Sam. <laughs> Don't tell this secret. Oh, wow. He badly wants to tell John, though. He really wants to tell John that Bran is alive. He probably, like Ned, probably badly wanted to tell Catelyn that John isn't really his kid to relieve a lot of that tension, but he couldn't do it because he promised. And though it's not stated, we can probably assume that they do finally know about the Red Wedding. As I said back in John's first chapter, they didn't know it then, but they probably do know now because of all this mixing with Stannis' people. So Bran is needed comfort at this moment. And so he really, of all the times Sam would want to tell John, this is really the time because John is lamenting the loss of so much of his family. Hearing that two of them aren't actually dead would be a huge boon, but he just can't do it. But John does know because of his dreams that Bran and Rickon and Rob's, well, not Rob, sorry, Bran and Rickon's direwolves are alive. So that's puzzling to him. And it's at least a little bit of comfort and it gets him on the right track. 
John says something else important about his dreams here too. Quote, I don't even dream of ghosts anymore. All my dreams are of the crypts of the stone kings on their thrones. Sometimes I hear Rob's voice and my father's as if they were at a feast. But there's a wall between us and I know that no place has been set for me. The wall part means several things. One, they're dead and he's not. It's a barrier of the living and the dead. It's also a repeat of the recurring Snowverse Stark mystery. We've seen a bunch of times that's truly just a fake mystery to conceal the real mystery of his Targaryenitude. Since being introduced to the Night's Watch back in A Game of Thrones, we've only seen the numbers dwindle and the castle empty gradually until we got to the point of Jon's return where it seemed half abandoned. Now it's a whole new place. Quote, The castle was more crowded than Sam had ever seen. Not with Black Brothers but with the king's soldiers, more than a thousand of them. There was a king in the king's tower for the first time in living memory, and banners flew from the lance, Hardin's tower, the Grey Keep, the Shield Hall, and other buildings that had stood empty and abandoned for long years. Sam and John had a lot of their friends survive, and it's hard to say how much impact that had on the rest of the brothers as far as John's reputation goes. It's, of course, it's great for their you know personal mind state and their not having to deal with the trauma of losing friends, even if, well, even if that might happen later. But John worries that a lot of the Night's Watch is going to never trust him because of people like Thorne and Slint spreading the word that he's a traitor. It's a small, loud minority, but to be fair, they're a small, loud, powerful minority. I mean, Janos Slint is, has authority. Alza Thorne has authority. As much as we don't like them, they do have that. So John being imprisoned for his deeds was certainly well-known and gossiped of by other brothers. Now, those who fought with John at Castle Black know the truth. They're going to spread the good word, probably. But, yeah, the good word, right? Hey, he's a, a man who dies and comes back to I life. I was <laughs> laughing. The good word of John Snow. <laughs> but men from the other castles, like Eastwatch and Shadow Tower, they don't, they didn't fight alongside John. All they know is what they heard. So it's a he said, he said situation. See, there it is. See, that's all. I love that as Sam is pondering the question of who is going to be Lord Commander, he considers the various factions and candidates while he notes that John is taking it on himself to train new recruits. Ah, John is, is great, man. He, he's a man of service, even in his downtime. He, his leg is injured. He's got not much to do, so might as well go train the recruits. He's just, his spare time, he's like, I'm going to go do duties that aren't even mine. Meanwhile, Alistair Thorne, the former master at arms, is, is over here plotting and planning when he's actually a guy that had this job before. There's lots of people that need training, but Alistair Thorne's over here plotting instead of doing the things the watch really needs. So John is quietly leading by example while the rest are arguing over who should lead. Actual leading versus debate over leading. This is a big part of why Sam starts making moves. And this is why he's like, John would be a much better candidate than these guys. I mean, look at how he's leading by... I mean, it's pretty straightforward. It's not just because he's John's friend. Speaking of, though, Sam reuniting with his friends is such a warm moment. He's moved to tears himself. I imagine a few of you were, maybe more than a few. Imagine not knowing if so many of your friends are even alive or if you'll see them again as walking corpses. Sam's already had to fight a corpse with a man who saved his life twice, small Paul. So... This is a real anxiety that he would be thinking about. So seeing them not just alive, but not walking dead is, uh, what a relief. Speaking of fighting, some of Sam and John's friends had just been at that same battle where Bowen Marsh was injured, the one we referred to as 
last time is part of why Bowen is particularly uh, aggressive about leading the, the mutiny against John because bringing the wildings through the wall is really personal to some of these guys. And this is the battle that reinforced that notion. A lot of brothers were killed at the Bridge of Skulls battle. And to fill that out a little more in the Dance of Dragons, the brothers expect the Weeper who led the attack on the Bridge of Skulls, they expect him to try again. A few notes from Joe, we get further information on Stannis moving in and how he's doing that, like how, how that all works. So it's a first chance to take a moment and realize that it worked, meaning Davos's attempt to read Maester Aemon's letter. I mean, we know that on reread, but this is the first time you can really just maybe sit there and think about all that because it's, it's, there's been so much action. The wildling girl aspect of all this is really poignant too. This is an easy thing to miss. In fact, John is obviously happy to discover Sam has survived and that Gilly is with him. We don't want to call it jealousy here, but Sam saved his wildling girl and John did not save his. So even though we know the circumstances were very different, very, very different, so that's why it isn't necessarily jealousy, but John is the kind of guy that just takes so much burden of responsibility on himself that you know that's the kind of thing he's going to say, I could have done more. I could have. He's already blamed himself so much for Grit's death. So seeing an example of a wildling and a black brother like making it work, even if it's not fully working, it's got to hurt him a little bit to see that maybe this was possible. Maybe he could have made it, make it work with the Grit. A little bit more information on how the, the voting works. That's just a, from a logistical point of view. 66% of the vote is needed to win. We, we don't actually hear the percentages as we're going through. We just know that it's not two-thirds. Uh, also highlights by showing us who the candidates for office are. It reminds us that this is such a different place. Not only is Stannis's men here and the Queen's men and all these other figures who we would not have expected to be at the wall. The former officers, guys like Cornhath and Thorin Smallwood, guys who would be up for Lord Commander, that whole class of officers has been wiped out. Jano Slint is new blood on the wall. Sure, he's coming in as the quote-unquote Lord of Harrenhal, Commander of the Gold Cloaks, but if someone like Cornhath or Thorin Smallwood was around, Jano Slint probably wouldn't have had much of an opportunity to grab this job. Nina wonders who the last king to stay in King's Tower was. I do too. John thinks back in the Game of Thrones that no king had stayed in King's Tower for 100 years. Mm, so if that's literal, meaning, meaning, meaning roughly actually 100 years and not just he's not just saying that, then maybe Makar or Egg himself could have come. Which uh, makes sense because Aemon was there. Yes. It makes a, sense for a king to come visit their close family. Yes, absolutely. Because Maester Aemon leaving the wall would be inappropriate for his duties, but the king can go wherever the hell he wants. <laughs> and that would not cause problems. That Sam promised three people that he wouldn't tell about Bran. Bran himself, Cold Hands, and the Strange Boy, which is, if you really think about that, the fact that he calls Jojen the Strange Boy in light of Cold Hands being an undead ranger. <laughs> it's like, that's the one that gets the attention. <laughs> the undead ranger is, yeah, that's interesting, but the strange boy, he's the one that really, hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. Not to mention Bran himself, but Bran doesn't seem so strange at this point, other than his powers. He's still kind of boyish. Jojen is little grandfather, however. 
Stannis makes an important, or Sam makes an important point about Stannis. Even though Stannis is harsh and, and rough and has problems, he's the king who cared and the king who came. He's the one that's doing his duty. That counts for a lot with the realm, with readers. And it's just hard to argue against it being a good deed. To borrow Danny's phrase, the gods make kings and queens to protect the ones who can't protect themselves. If you believe in that, then Stannis is the only one right now doing that in Westeros. Danny is doing that over in Slaver's Bay. And it's quite a contrast to Tommen signing decrees against people who rebelled against tyranny. Like they rebelled, they, they had a good reason to rebel. I mean, killing Ned Stark, uh, the, the argument about Ta- Joffrey not even deserving to inherit in the first place. There was a good reason for the rebellion, but the trade, the, the worst behaving people are the ones getting rewarded and the ones who were the most upright are getting punished. And that just, with Stannis doing the right things and the Lannish doing the wrong things, it's quite a contrast. Even if it's not 100% right and 100% wrong, still, it says a lot. I love how Gilly says the soldiers are all wearing blouses because she doesn't know what word to use. I would love to hear her say that, <laughs> that word. Her, her phrasing, I like the little uses of language that pop up. How George shows that regional, different regions say things differently. Very, very authentic. Happens in the real world. Lady Erdros points out that not only are John's dreams speaking to these mysteries and his identity and foreshadowing, it's also just straight up processing grief, right? Because we did, as we mentioned, he learned in between chapters that about, uh, about the Red Wedding and presumably the Purple Wedding too. But of course, he's not going to have any grief over that one. Lady Leaf Underhill says, did Stannis hear about the part of what Ned did, meaning s- supporting Stannis? Uh, that is an interesting question. The question, to be more clear, is a lot of people in the chat, live chat here, were discussing whether... Stannis' repeated phrase that Ned Stark was no friend of mine. Now, I think part of this is bitterness because Ned was friends to Robert and a lot of the regard he showed to Ned, Stannis thought should have come to him. So there's definitely jealousy in play here. But the question is whether Stannis knew how far Ned Stark went to try to get Stannis on the throne. And it's not clear to me that he knows just how far that went because he doesn't really mention it. He doesn't say... You know, your father tried to do a dude hit his part to put me on the throne. I think and Stannis is very big on giving credit where credit's due. This next chapter we're about to go into has a lot of that. So I suspect Stannis is not clear on Ned Stark's role here. Let us move on to John 11, the one with Stannis's indecent proposals, a.k.a. the Winterfell dilemma. Indecent, of course, because not just of how they make John feel, meaning... He calls up old feelings that he had from his childhood when he imagined himself being Lord of Winterfell. And then that would make him feel guilty because in order for him to be Lord of Winterfell, all his brothers and sisters have to be dead. So it's, it's associated with, am I wishing them dead by wishing for this? So that's calling back those feelings and Stannis is adding more discomfort to this situation by saying, well, you're also going to have to burn the werewoods in order to get, accept this gift from me. Yikes. Still, I wonder, good time to ask, how many of you, when you read this the first time, thought John would accept? Did you think John would become Lord of Winterfell and burn the heart trees? Or did you think maybe 
he would pass on it because it, it was going to maybe come to him later anyway via Rob's will or something else. The chapter starts so very simply. Massive world-shifting events are happening all around him, and here he is just in the practice yard. Quote, John prowled around Satin in a slow circle, sword in hand, forcing him to turn. That sounds a lot like a lot of these arcs. A lot of these arcs come in full circle, but something changes them and forces them into a new arc. Very, very much like Arya. Arya's arc came full circle, right back to the inns near where Micah's death, but then she's off to Bravos. Kind of like John here. John's being sent in a circle about his past, thinking about wanting Winterfell and his family and all that, but he's not going to accept it. He's going to turn off this path into the path of becoming Lord Commander. But what's so interesting about this is he gives up this claim before being offered Lord Commander. It's not like he was doing an either or. He turns it down. He turns down this offer without the protection of being Lord Commander, which says so much about his perspective and, and personality because John realizes that if Jano Slint is elected Lord Commander, then he's, he's doomed, like literally doomed, yet it still doesn't make him descend into cynical politics. He still just does his duty and what he thinks is right, even though it puts himself at great risk. And of course, this whole training bit, John starting a chapter off in the training yard is leading directly in from what we just talked about in the last Sam chapter, where he takes note of John spending his time training new recruits, doing duties that were not assigned to him, just being a leader. But also, as Lady Ardras pointed out very well, going to the practice yard is part of how John works through his conflicts and sadnesses. It's where he goes to process. There's a fun callback Right at the start of this chapter, compare this exchange. It's too heavy. The old town boy complained. It's as heavy as it needs to be to stop a sword, John said. Now compare that to this one very far back in the Game of Thrones. It's too heavy, Arya said. It's as heavy as it needs to be to make you strong and for the balancing. That was, of course, Sirio. Sirio teaching Arya, John teaching Satin. Gotta love it. We're not long from Arya being on John's mind a lot, given Melisandre's visions of her, which will turn out to be Jane Poole. <laughs> so too will practice scenes continue to be a pattern for John. There are a number of scenes with him training in the Dance of Dragons, uh, although he has less time for it, but Lord Commander doesn't slow him down too much. Fighting is still part of his duty. It's also the first of many great interactions with Stannis. We've learned that they both respect honesty and straightforwardness and justice and standing on principle duty, things like that. They have a lot in common. So a lot of mutual respect between the two of them. And as they speak, they discover more and more of those things to find in each other. Displays of strength and upright behavior are important. They Neither of them wilt before the other one, which is important because they both have little patience for such things. If this conversation were a duel, it would be all slashes from Stannis and parries from John. Right from the beginning, John tries to push away what he's done from the wall. He's, Stannis is giving him credit for what he's done and John is being gracious, saying, oh, I just did this. Oh, I did what anyone would do. Oh, my brothers did that. He's deflecting all the praise, uh, but gently and but firmly. But Stannis is relentless, and eventually the offer of Winterfell is something John did not see coming, and it's kind of like a, getting a hit through. It's the verbal equivalent of sparring practice, but with much bigger consequences. 
Stennis says John is bold enough to be a Stark. Does he remember hearing about Brandon? Speaking of what, whether Stannis knew anything about what Ned tried to do for his kingship, did Stannis know about Brandon going to King's Landing saying, Rhaegar, come out and die? Maybe that's part of this boldness that he's thinking of. Because bold enough to be a Stark it doesn't really apply to Ned all that much, right? I mean, Ned is brave, but bold isn't quite how I would describe him. So, but yeah, but what Brandon did, that was bold. <laughs> So this offer, too, here, another quote, gives John a new perspective. Lord Snow, Sir Alistair Thorne had named him that to mock his bastard birth. Many of his brothers had taken to using it as well, some with affection, others to wound. But suddenly it had a different sound to it in John's ears. It sounded real. Yeah. John's nickname, Lord Snow, becomes ironic even now because before he's Lord Commander, when the joke will truly be on Lord Sir Alistair, but Stannis uses that name now, perhaps because it's part of his presentation. He's leading up to the offer of making him Lord Stark. He's been successful with surprise attacks and might be luring the Boltons and Freys into a trap, but here it's a bit simpler, yet grand. Setting up John for this, the last line of the chapter. You need only bend your knee lay your sword at my feet and pledge yourself to my service and you shall rise again as John Stark, the Lord of Winterfell. But prior to this, Melisandre has indicated that burning the Winterfell werewood is necessary as well. That's just not going to happen though, right? Like that's the one thing that even a first time reader could have looked at and, and said, mm, I don't think John's going to do that. She goes as far as to say even his Night's Watch vows are irrelevant because they were said before Hardtree. So kind of like Tommen's decrees that they're invalid because of, well, certain extra circumstances. Technically invalid. Septon Selador made a similar point with much different intent behind saying so. Still, he said that John gave his vows before Hardtree, thus they're not proper. But if Melisandre is right that John's vows are invalid, then so are the vows said to the seven because Melisandre says only vows to R'hllor would matter. And so what she's saying is, in effect, the entire watch has invalid vows. That's a bit much, Mel. But so is bringing the free folk in. Yet John is one of the few people in the watch who doesn't immediately hate that idea. But, but Stannis knows that it's not going to be popular. Just, it just kind of works out a little bit for him that John's one of the few people that happens to have considered that as well. Stannis and Melisandre are quite a pair. Along with that and other things, they make a lot of big asks. Castles, lordships, burning of gods. Quote. You are not Rob, no more than I am Robert. The harsh words had blown away whatever sympathy John might have had for Stannis. I loved my brother, he said, and I might. Yet they were what they were, and so are we. I am the only king in Westeros, north or south, and you are Ned Stark's bastard. John is quite possibly more of a true king than you, thanks to his parentage, and Rob may have named him his heir in his will, which would include a legitimization. John, of course, knows none of this. Even though he feels guilt more than a few times for wanting Winterfell because it implies he wants his family dead, they have to be for him to be Lord of Winterfell, as we said before. Stannis will be bothered by John's reaction, but, but he'll move on, and frankly, he'll respect John even more despite the hassle. What a thing to refuse, really. Stannis is confused by 
turning down power. But it's rare to turn down power, right? But the reason Stannis respects it, even though it's surprising, is because John is focused on the same thing Stannis is. Winning the next war for the dawn. He's more concerned about that than getting power, which puts him ahead of just about everyone else on the planet as far as having the right priorities. So even if Stannis can say, hey, John, you're not doing what I want you to do, he's still closer to doing the right things than just about anyone else because at least he's focused on the others. The point of contention regarding Stannis' Lightbringer is that it gives off no heat. Well, that seems to hold even more meaning now given how much heat is associated not just with R'hllor, but Melisandre herself. This is where we learn one of her abilities is not just talk. Of her so-called lord keeping her warm, John gets a first-hand sampling when they're kind of close to each other and, and she, he feels the heat radiating off of her. He will quite likely get a bigger sampling of warmth if Rolor's fire is what resurrects him. This proximity between the two of them is not meant to be sexual. It's more likely mild foreshadowing for a non-romantic kiss, the kiss of life, perhaps. Much is made of Stannis' blue eyes and Melisandre's red eyes, like ice and fire, I suppose. John thinks of what Donald Noy told him, that Stannis was iron that he'd been before he broke. John thinks then of him as this brittle king in response to that, which kind of sounds like ice as much as it does iron. Melisandre also mentions only death is cold, which really fits with what we learned about Baramir and his true death that we referenced a little bit ahead of time, because that doesn't actually come till the Dance of Dragons, but it's super relevant here, isn't it? It's so fitting that Stannis would make use of the free folk without prejudice. That's the way he is. He's a merit-based guy. He's very much a means justify the ends, and he's very much a, a utilitarian type of guy. But it's still hard to see coming that he would ally with the wildlings because it's just hard to imagine such a high-born guy, so proud, would work with wildlings. It works against some of the other things we've taught, yet it does fit perfectly well with Stannis' personality. It's, it's an interesting conundrum and another example of George managing to write conflict in a way that fits so well. It's simultaneously off yet perfect. Particular point of credit shared between the two that relates to allying with wildlings, giants, etc., is this quote. And the more we lead each other, the weaker we shall all be when the real enemy falls upon us. John had come to that same realization. As you say, your grace. In between the talk of prizes and incentives, Stannis reveals that he gets the larger point, perhaps the largest point, the same point that Mance gets. All these old grudges and divides are only going to help the others in the long run. Like John, he knows that the wildlings have to get past the wall, not only to save their lives, but because otherwise the grand enemy will be all the stronger. They will be soldiers in the army of the dead if they're not soldiers fighting for living. This sound, but it sounds so mad and against tradition for the Northern Lords to see the wildlings as allies. It's a huge hurdle to clear. Men like Stannis and John don't fully get how deep that prejudice runs. And they're both going to struggle a little bit with forcing this relationship on the North. And Stannis is trying to do a lot of forcing of beliefs. Not only is he forcing the Wildling Alliance, he's forcing the worship of Valor and all sorts of other things. And that's not so great. Some of the other things he's doing are good. This, mm -mm, not so good. Interesting that John is unsettled about Melisandre's red eyes. A lot of you wrote about that and, and were curious about that because. He's not 
unsettled by ghost's eyes, which are also red, nor the red eyes of a weirwood tree, which John thinks are like ghost's eyes. And therein lies the difference. John does note a difference between Mel's red eyes and ghost's red eyes. They're both red, but they're a different kind of red. And he distinctly sees that. And that's important because, yeah, Melisandre is red and white, but it's a different red and white of ghost and the weirwood trees and all that. This one's from Nina. One thing that Stannis really appreciates about John is that he consistently tells the truth. Stannis really appreciates that. He goes in perhaps with a weird prejudice about John, thinking, well, you look like your father and he told the truth, so you must tell the truth too. That's a strange way to look at it, but it's, it is accurate. John is a very honest person, so it's a strange way to get there, but it is accurate. And that's great because Stannis, knowing you can trust someone in a situation as a king, there's so many reasons that people lie to kings or have their own ends or their own means or, the, or their own ambitions they're trying to work towards. The fact that Stannis knows John is just going to tell the truth to him is so valuable. He knows he can get great information about the wildlings, about the North, and that he doesn't have to question what John is telling him as far as its veracity. John could be wrong, but he's not going to lie. And that's great. That's another thing that enables John and Stannis to have a really strong working relationship. I'm curious if there'll be any more to it now that they're separate, if they'll ever come back together. wonder what Stannis is going to do hearing about John stabbing, but those are all topics for later. We have completed our five chapters of the day. Last week, we covered 173 minutes and 10 seconds of audiobook time. This week was 163 minutes, 25 seconds. We have covered 2683.25 of 2855.27. An easy way of saying that we've only got one more to go, folks, and we are done with the Storm of Swords. As usual, you can check the podcast link, compare it to the video, see how much was edited out. So next week, the last set of five, Tyrion 11 really making Tyrion Lannister a murderer, aka the one where Tywin and Shay die. Sam 5, the gang meets Sam the player, aka the one where Stannis requires castles. John 12, just say no to Winterfell, a.k.a. the gang votes for snow. Uh, Sansa, what does it say? Sansa 7, slaying a giant in a castle of snow, a.k.a. the one with only cat. And the epilogue, the day they hanged Merit Frey, a.k.a. the gang meets Lady Stoneheart. Mentioned in this episode, or a couple of our older episodes, we mentioned two Fire and Blood series episodes, the Witch Queen of Harrenhal and Faceless Men and Iron Bank episodes. Check those out if you are so inclined. A couple other quick announcements before we go. We're going to have it, a Song of Ice and Fire for Quiplash stream next week. That's May 9th. It's 8 p.m. Eastern. Before that, there's going to be an Ice and Fire Con patron stream with David J. Peterson, the language uh, creator. He created Dothraki and Valyrian. Why don't you tell him about our guest for Quiplash? Our guest for Quiplash, of course, yes. What am I thinking? I, I should have, you're right, I, should, I don't know where my head is. We're having an it's excellent on, set of guests. It's on your body. <laughs> excellent set of guests for that. It's going to be, along with me and Ashea, we have uh, Emmett Booth from Not A Cast. We have Chloe and Eliana from Girls Gone Canon. We have Lady Gwen and Yogg Boy from Radio Westeros. 
And we have Scad from Davos Fingers. And we have, uh, yes, we do have him. And we have Tara from Ice and Fire Con. And the Geek Yeri, she's the organizer of Ice and Fire Con. And I might not be playing very much at all because, as I discovered in my test stream last time, it is really hard to manage things and do things. Yeah, so she'll be running the game. It's hard to run it and participate in the actual game itself. So. I'll hand it off to Aziz at some point, though, to be like, hey, please. It's not even that I'm running it. It's just that you need to keep saying things out loud for all of y'all watching. Yeah, you need to be reminded of like the timer and things like that. Yeah, yeah a lot of little things Aziz like that. needs to take over for one of it. But either way, uh, those are our guests. Yeah, and it's going to be a lot of fun. Quiplash, if you're not familiar with it, is a little bit like Mad Libs. It's, it's meant to be a humorous game where you fill in the blank with... Or Cards Against Humanity. Yeah, Cards Against Humanity is a great comparison. And of course, this is a Song of Ice and Fire themed. All the questions are, are written, almost all of them written by Ashea uh, with a Song of Ice and Fire slash Game of Thrones um, aspect. And uh, all of you will be able to vote. You can have up to 10,000 people in the audience. And I really don't think we'll have 10,000 live viewers. <laughs> so all of you, every single one of you will be able to vote. There's no app necessary. You access it on your browser. And... Uh, It'll be a, a great, great time. I expect a lot of laughs. Mm -hmm. I do too. Yeah, it's super funny. It's great times. And like she said, it's really easy to participate. You don't need an app, just your phone or a tablet or computer to vote on. No, just a website is all you need to do is go to the, the jackbox.tv website. And this is another reason why Shea is the best. Oh, and think. all the funds go to Ice and Firecon, obviously. Oh, yes, it's a so benefit for Ice and Firecon. Yeah, it's yes. a benefit, obviously. I, th I thought, I was like, I don't know that we really mentioned that I did not here. say that, yeah. Yeah, so <laughs> anyways, come <Whoops>. donate <laughs> money to Ice and Firecon, yeah. any proceeds from the video, yada, yada. It is a, not, Ice and Firecon is a not-for-profit organization, so that's important detail. And <laughs> they had to uh, postpone things from April mm -hmm. to October, and I gotta say, October's still in risk. Yeah, it Very could be, much yeah. so. So yeah, please support. So, but we have our fingers crossed. So yeah, Shay is the best. Look at all the different things she's doing all at once and offline as well, organizing things like that. Very cool. Thanks again to Joe and Nina. Thanks again to our History of Westeros mods for posting every chapter in the Facebook group, leading the discussion and including great artwork. It helps us a lot. Same goes for the people who participate in our discussions on Flick and Slack and Discord. Lots of good stuff happening there. Different communities are evolving under the History of Westeros umbrella, and we're so happy to see that. It's really cool to be able to bring people together and discuss not just Game of Thrones, but just everything, especially at a time like this, where we all could perhaps use a little more human interaction. Thanks also to Michael Clarfeld and Kevin McLeod for the music and visuals. Same goes for Joey Townsend and Jesse Kowal and our engineer for helping make the sound better. I guess he'll have a little extra challenge today after some of the technical issues we had. And last but certainly not least, thank you to our patrons for the financial support. It is super important for keeping the show going. Being able to do this for a living is a blessing and I am eternally thankful to those of you who have helped out or will help out or have helped out. It all counts. And if you can't support financially or simply aren't willing to, there are other ways you can help. Click the like button on either the video and or the podcast, leave us a review. All those things really help get us picked up by the various algorithms that run the podcasting and video worlds. 
all those mathy things happening in the background. I don't know exactly how they work, but I know how to slightly get them more working in our favor. And that's what you do to help. Very easy. I hope you can spend a few minutes, or not even minutes, a few seconds doing that. And until next time, Valar Reredus. <laughs>